This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is sponsored by Anderson Quantity Surveying. Based in Aberdeen but working throughout Scotland and beyond with almost 20 years experience in the construction industry, AQS specialise in all aspects of cost budgeting and control on construction projects. Whether you're embarking on a domestic or commercial refurbishment, extension or new build, AQS can provide you with budget cost plans, tender documentation, contractor comparison reports and cost management tools for use throughout the construction phase of your project. To find out more, give AQS a call on 01224 502 550 or email gary at andersonqs.co.uk It's Wednesday, and you know what that means. Welcome to episode 23 of the ABZ Football Podcast. I'm Gary Scott, and joining me this week, as always, it's Gavin Baxter and Graham Steele. How's it going, guys? Very well, thank you. Good, thank you. Yep, still uh, basking in the glory of last week's episode and the online discussion that has surrounded it. Excellent, Graham. Uh, it's good to have you back in the saddle, and as Gavin's just touched on last week's worst Don's 11 segment has certainly got the tongues wagging in social media land. What were your thoughts on it and any glaring omissions or errors on the side from your perspective? I quite enjoyed it. I thought it was all fair and accurate. A couple of guys that maybe could have gone in, but I'm probably splitting hairs in general. I don't think I've got anything that I can say I disagree with. One point I will make, which I've seen a few people make, is I was a little bit confused with the Tuzani reference as well. I actually quite like Tuzani. And I still can't decide if listening back to it, someone was having a go or if, unfortunately, he was lumped in in a conversation with the other players were getting picked on. So, Tuzani, good. Should have been referenced in that context. The rest of it was all fine. From what I recall, Andy was the one that brought up Karim Tuzani's name. And Andy is clearly not here to uh, clarify. But I think the discussion we were making was, or the point we were making, was in reference to, you know, we've had... Theo Schnelders, we've had Theo Tenkat, Paul Mason, guys like that who came from Holland in the early 90s. And then 15, 20 years later, we had Jeffrey Devisher and Karim Tuzani and Sven Bass and Dave Bus, of course, and Dairon Dahl. And let's be fair, they're not in the same category of player. And let's be fair, also Tuzani, he didn't really feature, so, you know. Yeah, I think that's what that was. I think it was an unfortunate crossover of people talking as well, I think, at the time. And it led to people then going, they're talking about Kareem Tuzani being in here. And it's like, I don't think any of us at that point were talking about Tuzani being in. Andy might have been. He's not He's not on the, the, the show this week. So fuck it. If that's what Andy meant, that's what Andy meant. Who am I to argue with uh, the king of what culture? Let's put a note in, because Andy's going to come back on the show, I'm sure of it. Yes. We'll, make, we'll put a note in. We'll ask him for his complete thoughts on Kareem Tuzani next time definitely one of the positives has definitely been the um the response we got to the greg wild conversation segment first of all gav i think i need to congratulate you on putting that segment together um i didn't hear it obviously until the final version went out and great thumbs up lovely lovely stuff on that part but um okay. if greg wild is out there and he wants to come on the show to maybe put his side of the story on 
Greg, there's there's a place, there's a, a seat warm waiting for you here on the ABZ Football Podcast if you want to come on and tell us why we're wrong about things. I suspect you're probably not going to take us up on that offer, but never mind, the offer is there. We can arrange for a Union Jack cushion on your seat. Mm, no, fuck that. <laughs> um, so with no men's or women's fixtures to look back at this week, the main focus of part one of this week's episode will be our previews of our SPFL Premiership doubleheader as we visit Leith in midweek to face Hibs and then our Boxing Day visit to Pataudry of Dundee. And we'll take our regular look at our loanies in our Loan Watch feature. And in part two, we bring you the latest in our line of exclusive in-depth interviews with Don's personalities of past and present. And it's our ABZFP Christmas gift to you in the form of a man who had two spells with Aberdeen making a total of 65 appearances. Scoring six goals in the process, it's the one and the only Carrie Arneson. But first, let's take a look at our doubleheader fixtures coming up in the week ahead. After a week off following our 1-0 victory at McDermott Park, the Dons travelled Easter Road for a delayed fixture following Hibbs' participation in the League Cup final this afternoon. Stephen Glass's side heading to Leith on a run of three wins on the spin to face a Hibs side with only one win in their last five in the league. That came last time out against Dundee and only two wins in the league since the start of October, a run which has ultimately cost Jack Ross his job. And at the time of recording, Hibs have still to fill that particular hot seat, although strong rumours would suggest that Sean Maloney might be appointed in time for our visit to Easter Road on Wednesday night. Now, Hibs, probably not as free-flowing as the media would like to suggest this season. Um, they've only scored 20 goals in 18 league games, which is three less than an Aberdeen team who've struggled for much of the season to score goals and a fairly porous defence as well, it's fair to say, conceding 21 in 18 games. Martin Boyle, the danger man, seven goals makes him the top scorer for Hibs, but Kevin Nisbet's next up on four. And I guess the Dons will be hoping to do as we did at Pataudry in October and keep both of those guys quiet. So, gents... What are we expecting? What are we hoping for Wednesday's visit to Leith? I'm not too sure what to expect, mainly because Hibs are probably actually even more erratic than we are. So you catch them on a good day and they can be pretty handy, but they've been pretty woeful of late. But I'm really hoping we can get three points out of it, uh, as I would always be hoping for. And I don't actually think that might have sounded a little bit crazy maybe even four or five weeks ago, but we've been in really pretty good form and we do seem to have sort of settled into a bit of a, a rhythm. We've cut out some of the nonsense in the defence and we've been chipping in with a few goals. So I'm looking forward to um, hopefully Aberdeen just going down and getting the job done, to be honest. Yeah, likewise. Um, it's it's a difficult one to predict in certain, certain elements, you know, because we are recording this on Sunday, a few hours after the cup final. Um, Hibs right now don't have a manager in place. The, the rumour is going around that is going to be Sean Maloney, but... Even then, sometimes if that was the case, you'd maybe see him, you know, maybe the cameras would pick him up at the games today, watching, but no sign of him. So he was at Hamden today. He was, he was at Hamden today. Okay. Fair play. Could be him. Maybe that'll be, maybe that'll happen. Maybe you'll say no. Um, And that makes, creates um a different atmosphere in terms of the game, you know, in terms of hips players, maybe they'll get a bounce. Um, I think there's been a lot of interesting comments come out from Martin Boyle earlier this week regarding Jack Ross, which... Yeah, makes you wonder about uh, the mentality of the Hibs team and the Hibs players, especially. Um, I think I still says we're in a good run of form. You know, two clean sheets, three wins. I think we've got a lot of dangerous players that could cause Hibs some real problems. So, um, yeah, very hopeful that we're going to go down there and 
make it four wins on a spin and create some, uh, give ourselves a good cushion in the top six. Definitely. Before we actually move on to the serious chat, can we all just have a conversation about Martin Boyle's hair again? Did anyone see it this afternoon at Hamden? There's definitely shoe polish at work there. I mean, it's basically, it looked like a vampire or something. It's been like painted on that hair transplant. I, I don't know, like, it's hard to describe just how bad it looks. We commented, I think, before the home game against Hibs about how good a hair transplant he'd got, clearly off the back of signing that new deal with Hibs in the summer. But to ruin it with just, I don't know, an overload, an overdose on Just For Men is, Martin, what's going on, mate? I just, I don't understand what's happened there. But yeah, Gav, you're right. Some really interesting comments from Martin Boyle earlier in the week about, I think, the players themselves feeling that Jack Cross shouldn't have been sacked. I think Boyle said something along the lines of he only really signed a new deal in the summer because of the fact that Jack Cross was still in charge. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking about. And, you know, you hear, you know, we've heard it in the summer, maybe at the end of last season about, you know, players can be very loyal to certain managers and when they then leave and if the players are perceive that to be an unjust sacking then maybe that'll be sway their opinion towards the new manager coming in and they might think maybe down some tools maybe not subconsciously maybe not try as hard so if there's that if that's there then you know i wouldn't say it's out of the question that could happen um they're professional footballers obviously but you know they i don't think martin boyle's come out and said that of his own accord and just thought that that's an individual opinion i think he's probably speaking for a number of the players and that'll be uh yeah it's another interesting angle on the game shall we say yeah because it almost gets you back into i guess i always hark back to the territory we had when jimmy caldwood left aberdeen but it was quite clear that notwithstanding the fact that mark mcgee was also a disastrous manager disastrous appointment disastrous as a man manager you could also tell that so many of his players that were left in the squad that mcgee inherited had basically kind of jacked it anyway by that point yeah i think that if there is that going on in the background I would say that's quite a difficult situation to come into if you're an experienced manager. If they, you know, if the if there are substance to the rumours about Maloney and that that is who they end up with, then that's a really tough gig for your first one. A team that's not performing particularly well and with you know, fair enough, fans have got reasonable expectations of what they should be doing based on they've probably got a decent budget. So you're coming in with that, and then you have to deal with possibly an unsettled squad who are not necessarily going to take to you, not because you're, you know, Sean Maloney or insert generic manager name here, you're you're not Jack Ross, so you're always going up against it. So if there is that, then yeah, that'll be quite tricky. And, you know, probably when it comes to Wednesday, that, that suits us fine if the squad um, is a little bit unsettled and there's maybe some frustrations with how things have been handled. Guys who have been not quite fully focused on the job, then that's fine in my opinion. I mean, I don't think you probably saw that out of Hibs this afternoon, to be fair. I thought Hibs, it was, I, I thought it was a pretty miserable game of football, in fairness. The second half was entertaining, but mainly because it just descended into, I don't really know how to describe the second half, to be honest. It kind of descended in a little bit of farce and just a bit of blood and guts and thunder, end-to-end kind of football more than anything. But the interesting point as well was going to be that even if Sean Maloney is appointed, let's just say tomorrow, Monday, I, I, Hibs won't be in training tomorrow because they're playing today. He's only going to have a day tops to work with a team ahead of then potentially playing us on Wednesday night, which would make me wonder whether they even actually bother putting Maloney in, whether he gets appointed Tuesday or even Wednesday morning, but it's David Gray who takes the team again, and then maybe they give Maloney the run until, you know, Boxing Day, or they might even say, you know what, he doesn't really come in 
properly until after the winter break. But the kind of thing that would kind of almost make sense. Um, but that is an interesting dynamic as well. But when Hibs decide to actually pull the trigger on Maloney, providing they can get over the line, because I'd be astonished if they try to do it Monday and hope that they get some sort of bounce off it by Wednesday. I think you're right. You you probably if it is but it doesn't matter who it is going to be, you'd probably want them in for the sort of Christmas whatever it is Boxing Day type, and then because it's basically a free hit with the fans doesn't matter really what happens then people will understand he's new then there's the winter break and some time to try and you know figure out what he's going to do with his squad and all the rest of it because it does seem a bit mad to try and chuck him in on Tuesday for example for a, I mean, there's nothing you can change in a day and then you're in a pretty tough game for them so yeah it'd be interesting to see what they do with that but uh, I still like to think regardless of whether they've got they've graced on charge or they've got someone new I'd like to, to think we've got enough about our our first 11 to uh, you know, sort of nullify whatever Hibs do. That's the question there would be the way the Hibs board look at it because if you went ahead and said, okay, let's just keep David Gray in place until the January break, that's four games in quick succession Hibs have the same way as us. And the way the league table works, yeah, the way it looks right now, if they, you know, and they're all big games the Hibs have. I mean, I'm just looking at them. It's obviously, it's ourselves, United away at Tannadice, Celtic away, um, and then it's the Edinburgh Derby on the 3rd of January. So they're all big games for a Hibs fan and a Hibs player to be looking at. So um, they could look at that and say, if we just wait and chance our arm, then four defeats, which is not improbable, could um, could really make their second half season difficult, if not, you know. In terms of what their expectations were, I'm sure coming into the season, you know, make for a very disappointing reading. I think that's as well why it's a massive game for us actually um, on on Wednesday night is because of the, the fixtures that, that, that Hibs have directly afterwards. Like you say, Gav, it's 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 not a particularly kind run of fixtures for Hibs in the form they're in at the moment, although they played Dundee United who are also in a bit of, you know, poor form, although they perform quite well at Ibrox on, on Saturday. But you're right, you know, they, they go to, to Tanadice, then it's to uh, Parkhead on the 29th. And yeah, and Edinburgh Derby on the third of January, Hearts are doing Hearts are doing well this season. I mean, I don't I wasn't particularly impressed by them at Tawdry. Um we seem to have a bit of a number on Hearts to be to be frank this season so far, but they're clearly grinding results out at the top end of the table. So that won't be a, an easy match for Hibs either from that perspective. And it's another positive potentially in our on our, on our side of the chart going into the game on Wednesday night is the fact that we've had no games since the St. Johnston match last last weekend. We go into that game, you'd like to think nice and fresh, 10 days of, of hopefully some hard training at Cormac Park. I know that the guys had a set of smaller kind of Christmas nights out, et cetera, after the St. Johnston match. But you'd like to think that's given us a chance to get some, you know, to, to recharge the batteries a little bit, get back working on the training ground, et cetera, et cetera, go into this game on Wednesday night feeling pretty fresh, whereas Hibs have had to play in the same period of time, they've had the, well, they'll be playing three matches. The 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 fixture they had at St. Mirren, then obviously they were at home against Dundee on Wednesday last week. Celtic again today. I mean, Hibs put a lot of effort into that match today. It's fair to say they kind of ran themselves on the ground. We're chasing shadows for much of that first half. You have to wonder about the way that the defeat happened for them. A couple of iffy refereeing decisions once again from uh, John Brother Beaton. You know, all of those kind of things start to come together, don't they? And you kind of wonder what sort of frame of mind Hibs will be in come Wednesday night, and hopefully we should be quite fresh. And what looked like a game a few weeks back that we'd have all been targeting and saying if we could get a draw out of that game, I think a lot of people now would be disappointed if we didn't come away from Easter Road with three points on Wednesday night. 
I think um, there's a few points to this. Um, I've listened to the guys on Red Tinted Glasses today, um, their most recent episode, and they mentioned how we've basically been on like, almost like an international break, you know, yeah. as you say, the 11 days without any football. And if that was to happen, if it weren't an international break, you might look at it and think, well, this is a bad time it's come at because, you know, we've three wins, you know, want to keep the momentum going. For me, I don't think it's a bad thing that we've had some time off um, just to get some rest back into the players, get some work on the training ground done, get some bodies back. I noticed this week that Calvin Ramsey posted something um, yep. alluding to the fact he's back in training. Whether he's fit for selection, don't know, but, you know, good progress being made. Andrew Considine making progress. Excellent to see. Um, so, yeah, I mean, We've spoken with guys on this show, interviewed ex-players who've lost cup finals, and they tell you how demoralizing, deflating it is. As you say, Celtic dominate possession. Anyone that's ever played football knows that it's a much easier game to play when you've got the ball instead of chasing the ball. And that's what Hibbs did for most of the day. Um, and we we can joke all we want about how, like, you know, Hibbs going one nil up and then conceding an equalizer seconds later is so Hibbs. But it's, I think there's a perfectly legitimate question to be asked about Hibbs' mentality. And it, it doesn't really matter who the players are. It just seems to be this thing that's ingrained in that club that they just don't quite stand up when they need to. And my hope is that, yeah, they will not be able to recover from the disappointment of today and we can go there and really take it to them. Yeah, I mean, the thing for me is I've not watched a lot of Hibbs this season. I obviously um, saw them at Petodre in the season. Today's probably the first time I've actually sat and watched them for 90 minutes um, in a game that doesn't involve Aberdeen. I'm, I'm pretty sure that'd be the case. And yeah, you're right, Gav. I mean, <clears throat> one, let's not, you know, I think most Aberdeen fans would probably be rooting for Hibs to win the League Cup this afternoon, just avoid Ranger Celtic winning it. But it doesn't make it any less funny when Hibs Hibs it by conceding the goal within about 14 seconds of having gone 1-0 one, one up. Um and again, I thought all of Hibbs's typical issues that we'd come to expect were there again today. Um, Hanlon, McGinn, Porteous, like these guys are not good defenders and their goalkeeper is really ropey. I think for us going Easter on Wednesday night, we kind of have to try and take the game to Hibbs a little bit, not sit in not allow Hibbs to come on to you. Because when you, when you allow Hibbs to attack you, they can be quite dangerous. They've got a decent threat in Boyle's a bit of an enigma almost in a way because he always seems to do very very well for for bursts it seems to me and then he kind of disappears for a period of time I thought we we did very well against him at Petodre in the season keeping pretty quiet same with Nisbet I'm sure Nisbet played that day and I think we kept him quiet as well Doidge seems to be a striker who goes on he seems to be pretty streaky he doesn't seem to be consistent right away through the course of a season I think if we can go and impose ourselves on, on Hibs on um on Wednesday night, we've got a really, really good opportunity of taking something away. A lot of interesting decisions, though, I think, to be made in terms of our personnel and how we go forward on Wednesday night. And we can maybe come to that in a minute. Especially again, looking at the way that Hibs played today. Hibs looked very, very, very susceptible to a ball over the top this afternoon. Yeah, I was just gonna say that if in the likely event that Sean Maloney is appointed Hibs manager, it's a it's a big risk for from both sides, probably, I'd say. Um, you know, Sean Maloney's not been a manager in his own right so far. So it'll be interesting to see how the players respond to him, how I think he'll probably not get as difficult a time from the, 
the media as the likes of, say, Postacoglu or even Stephen Glass. But, um, you know, he's an outsider in many ways, the way he's been brought up in his coaching career. And equally for him, it's a risk because he's going to go from coaching, you know, Romelu Lukaku and Kevin De Bruyne to coaching Scott Allen and Jamie Murphy. So he's taking a step up is what you're saying. I'm I'm saying good luck with that one, Sean. (laughs) So yeah, with regards to our own selection, I think we talked about this um, with Andy. We touched on it a little bit last week, yeah. And again, I go back to the Red Tinted Glasses one day. They had a Hibs fan on. He mentioned the susceptibility they have in terms of defending crosses. So that makes you think, okay, well, Jet's the guy to get in there. Let's load the ball into the box and use his unbelievably sizable frame to just bully their defenders around and, and get headers near the ball. But equally, as you say, they conceded two goals over the top today. Teddy Jenks is showing real ability and power with his running. So, yeah, it's an interesting time, interesting call for Stephen Glass to make there. Graham, I saw you nodding about the possible inclusion of Jet. That's something I wouldn't have thought I'd have seen two weeks ago. No, no, it's just my nervous twitch. <laughs> He's, yeah, joking aside, I, I think it is fair to say he has been useful and has contributed to the team in the recent run of games considerably more so than he had before. I'm just not personally sure you take Hibs as an example. They can attack quite well. I imagine if we do set in, we'll be under pressure. And to me, you're just carrying a man in that situation. I'm not personally certain that's the game you really want. I feel like, you know, Ramirez and Watkins will pressure from the front, defend from the front, if you like. I feel like that's more what we will probably need rather than having... Jet just saunter around in case we get a corner or something like that. Um, but that, that being said, he has been much improved. So maybe this is a sign that, you know, whether it's fitness conference, a bit of everything, he's started to screw the nut. Um, if he does appear in the team sheet, I'll be less concerned than I probably would have been if he'd, you know, when he popped up in the run of games initially. Tell you what, this is evidence that Graham Steele does not have Instagram because if he'd watched uh, Jet's most recent post, and by the way, whoever does Jet's graphics and social media work, fair play, mate. Good job. Jet won the ball back against St Johnston. He did. He's a changed. He's a changed man. He he did actually. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think I turned to Chris at the game and said, "I hope Graham's watching this. He'll shit a brick watching that." <laughs> um, I think it's gonna be interesting to see what happens with our, with our selection. I'd I'd be amazed if Glass decided to change a team that's won three on the spin. Jack McKenzie though was back on the bench against St Johnston, so you'd have to imagine he is. Well, he's got another eleven days worth of you know, training everything under his belt now as well. Does he decide to bring McKenzie back in? McKenzie would probably most likely be up against Boyle in that scenario. Do you decide to stick with Hayes because Hayes has a bit of pace to to track Boyle or do you go back with McKenzie if McKenzie's fit? It's interesting. I think you can go either way, really. It depends on where McKenzie is as far as his fitness. If we've been able to anyway simulate or recreate a match environment, if we've not, then I'd say that Boyle's not the greatest opponent to go straight up against, um, especially given that McKenzie's had a relapse before with his injuries. Um, I'd be pretty confident and comfortable if Johnny Hayes continued at left back um, against Hibs and we looked maybe towards Dundee, a game that we're probably going to have more of the ball in to, to kind of ease Jack McKenzie back into the game. I think the only selection dilemma will be Jenks or Jet. I, I would probably agree with that, I think. Obviously, this is all on the basis that everybody who's 
you know, was fit for the games against St. Johnston are still fit. Um, I haven't seen anything to the contrary on that in the last week and a bit, but obviously because we didn't have a game at the weekend, it's been very, very quiet with the news out of pathology in terms of, you know, who's fit and who's, you know, who's not. And there's a couple of interviews out with Stephen Glass and Scott Brown and everything, which were actually quite good watches, I thought, both of them. Um, but yeah, I think it'll be interesting. I, I actually wouldn't be surprised to see him go with the same starting lineup. He maybe decides to go with the idea of allow Jet to kind of bully the likes of Porteous and Hanlon. Um, again, these guys who've had a hard shift at it today at Hamden with maybe a view to bringing like Jenks on with like 20, 30 minutes to go and try and try and, you know, hopefully, hopefully by that point, you're not coming out and try and grab something. Hopefully we're in control of the game, but kind of similar to what happened against St. Johnston, take him on and hopefully stretch the game or get running with the ball at, at, at a tired, tired defense. You'd imagine at that point. Agreed. Other than that, I can't see any other changes to be honest to the, to the starting lineup. No, all being well, everyone fit available. Um, I'd say, I think the consistency of the results has matched the consistency of the selection and the players getting more and more used to each other. So I think it would be a, a foolish move to to change that unnecessarily. It's also not a great message to send out either, is it? You go and win three games in the spin and then as soon as someone's back, you just change it up. So I can see the Hayes-McKenzie dilemma to an extent, but I'm kind of minded with you guys. That's Unless he's absolutely firing on all cylinders now, He's fully fit. That's quite a tough shift to go into first time out when he has had the relapse in the past. So I'd probably err on the side of caution, give Hayes the nod, and then it's maybe a change you can make you know, after an hour or something like that, depending on how the, the game is going. And as for everyone else, yeah, I'm with you guys. It's been going well. So I don't see why you would I don't see why you would change it. I would extend I would extend those thoughts to Ojo and Ramsey as well. Yeah, I would agree with you there. I would just take my time with Ramsey as much as I'm really keen to see him back in the pitch I don't feel yeah he's a better he's probably a better footballer than Ojo and it's great to watch him attacking Ojo doesn't quite have that but Ojo's by no means we're not carrying him in any way shape or form he's absolutely doing a job for the for the team and he's playing well so I'm quite content to keep him there until the point where Ramsey's absolutely fully fit and can play 90 minutes and then you probably do want to maybe move him in then, but it might be a little bit too early. Absolutely. So predictions for Wayne's tonight then? I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm just going to say we're going to make a real statement. 3-0. Oof. To Aberdeen, I presume you mean. 3-0 to Aberdeen. Goal scorers. Goals from Christian Ramirez is going to get one. We'll get one from a set piece. So I'm going to say Ross McCrory will get one and Marley Watkins. I like it. I like the positivity. All good. Graham? I'm going to say Hibs 1, Aberdeen 2, and I'm going to say I'm going to say Ramirez and Jenks. Hibs 1, Aberdeen 3. I agree. I think we're going to go Tonto. Bates and McCrory, two set pieces. I thought Hibs looked pretty susceptible to set pieces today. There was a couple of opportunities. Celtic should, Celtic should have had a couple of goals from set plays today. And Christian Ramirez as well. Why not? Has anyone watched the Christian Ramirez Dylan McGeek interview, by the way, on Red TV? Not in its entirety, just the select clip on uh, on Twitter. And bless, Christian Ramirez is just too nice. <laughs> Have you seen it, Graham? No, same as Gav. Okay. I've seen it, it's up there and I haven't got into it yet. But yeah, all the comments are just Christian Ramirez is too nice. So I, I watched a little bit of it. Um, I'm not sure if Dylan McGeek is going to be 
the next Michael Parkinson um, would be my first takeaway from it. But yeah, Christian Ramirez is clearly just such a nice guy. He's just not willing to slag off anybody. Although the things I did take out of it, which I thought were really funny, was the fact that they called Declan Gallagher's, well, they said Declan Gallagher looks like a microphone um, for his haircut, which I quite liked because uh, he's just got a number four all over, which I thought was quite funny. And then also Tom Ritchie, bless him, who's the young keeper on loan out at uh, Huntley, they remarked that he looked like Buzz from Home Alone, which is also quite uncanny. But also, what a shame. If they were talking about worst haircut, surely they had to look no further than Niall McGinn. Surely that's where they had to go for that one. I'd also question if Buzz from Home Alone is really a suitable target reference for the young lad. <laughs> I feel like you'll have to be Googling that one. <laughs> Let's move on to the Boxing Day visit of James McPake's Dundee, who will arrive at Pataudry on Boxing Day. They're on a run of four consecutive defeats in the league as we stand at the moment. So this has been recorded on Sunday evening. Um, now that followed a mini resurgence for the D with back-to-back wins against Motherwell and St. Johnston. But everyone's beaten St. Johnston this year, so it doesn't really matter. Um, they've lost seven of their nine games on the road this season. And they've only scored 17 goals in, uh, across the league campaign. And they've got the most poorest defence in the league, 35 goals conceded, which wasn't helped by conceding five to Ross County at home. Discipline issues this week as well with Jason Cummings not being selected for the Hearts game due to attending what I would class as being a second-rate podcast's live show at the Hydro. Um, it's not clear if he's going to come back in for that. It sounds from James McPick's language, I think today or yesterday, that he's pretty much out of the picture now. <laughs> I love to see that Jason Cummings hasn't decided to wind, like, screw the head on at all now. Uh, there we go. You, you know that he was there, but you know what he was dressed as? Oh, what? Uh, Joaquin Phoenix's Joker, yeah. Oh, what a fucking cop. And he was at, he was on stage just, you know, being Jason Cummings. Oh, he actually was on stage? Yeah. Oh, I didn't realise that. Oh, yeah, it was, it was full-blown, like, you know, oh, sorry, boss, I can't make it in today, I'm ill. And then you've got, like, corporate seats, so you know you're going to get filmed, that sort of thing. What an absolute screw-up bag. Yeah, it's not like he's done a number and he's, you know row double Z right at the back and he's been really unlucky a little bit like um, Jim Goodwin Jim today. Goodwin today <laughs> Jim Goodwin today he got absolutely fucking done have you seen you have seen this Graham the, the cameras zoomed in and Jim Goodwin I presume it was his son with him his son had a green and white scarf on so I guess it could have been Hebs it could have been Celtic but I suspect we know it's kind of irrelevant because I include ourselves in this every Every fan absolutely loves it, don't they, when you see someone who represents your club watching someone else. So it doesn't really matter which side he was in. Um, no one's done him any favours with that. That one, isn't it? We've seen it so many times. If it's like an ex-player of yourself in your end, great lad. If yeah. it's one of your current boys in another end, fucking Boo. hang them hang them from the highest <laughs> lamppost. I guess in Jim Goodwin's defence, he wasn't in an end of the stadium. He was clearly in the, like, the corporate central area. Um, but and Jim Goodwin's an ex he was a Celtic youth player wasn't he I think I'm pretty certain he was a Celtic youth player I think you're right there yeah and given his nationality I think it's probably fair to say that we all know what team he probably supports and his if his lad supports them then fine fuck it but it was just one of those moments of oh no can you imagine if that was our gaffer like just put it into perspective can you imagine if like Derek McInnes two seasons ago had been at I don't know Rangers against Hearts and he was standing next to Jack McInnes who probably would have been wearing a Rangers, like, like fucking full Union Jack and a Rangers scarf and all that fucking shite. Just imagine the vitriol that that would have got. 
doesn't really bear thinking about, does it? Oh, I mean, we would have put pay to our Greg Wild conversation CD last week. <laughs> but yeah, Dundee, I mean... Um, Just going back to the open goal thing, are they still peddling this Joker pish? Well, presumably, because he was dressed up. He's got the tattoo. Cummings does. Like a, yeah, his hand, like the Joker smile thing. Oh, yeah, yeah he does. Yeah, oh, um, yeah, I don't know exactly what the context of it was. If he just, you know, was there and then they just said, let's get all our mates on the stage or whatever. But um, yeah, yeah, it's they're, they're still doing their thing. Also, I can't believe we had Andy Murray from What Culture on last week and we didn't decide to talk about the cum dog. We got him on a week too early. We did. We could have had, to, we could have had a, a big in depth chat about cum dog versus Grado, but never mind. There we go. This is a very niche conversation area we've just ventured on down. It's fair to say Dundee did a number on us back in October. Gav, you and I were in attendance that evening. Yeah. Charlie Adam kind of ran the show for Dundee, which as much as it pains me to say that. He's been out injured now. He might be back for the game against us um, on, on Boxing Day. But just generally, thoughts on on Dundee? <laughs> not just not the place. We could be here for a while with that. Uh, what we can expect, what we can hope for. It's very difficult to do these previews like a game away because we don't know what happens on Wednesday night and how that affects things. But right now, sitting here as we are, what, what are we thinking, what are we expecting from Dundee unboxing? From the sounds of things, I was kind of listening to the um, to sports sound yesterday. And it sounds like they, kind of like Hibs, have put a lot of work in the, the game at Tynecastle against Hearts and ultimately they've come up short, a late goal for Jamie Walker there. Um, yeah, I it, it's hard. it was at Dens Park, but never mind. Yeah, the park. Never mind. <laughs> um, so yeah, in that sense, it's like you said, it's difficult to predict because you know we don't know how we're going to play against Hibs if we're going to suffer any injuries between now and then. But much the same as we mentioned about the Hibs game, I would just hope that we can go there to Pataudry, not go anywhere. Um, <laughs> I would hope that we can take the game to Pataudry, and uh, you know they were allowed that day at Dance Park to run the show because we just didn't really lay a glove on them all day. And I would like to think in this game we go into a lot more positive intent, not allow Charlie Adam if he's on the pitch to you know even get a sniff of the ball. And I'd like to think that with the way they've been defending lately, we can we've got enough quality to break them down. I said that before the game at Dance Park, and we were hopeless. So yeah, that's why it's so hard to predict. Dance Park. I was going to say it was a bit of a a blip or an anomaly in our season, but it, at the time it wasn't necessarily because we were either reasonable or pretty woeful but it does feel like we've maybe not quite i don't know if it's turned a corner we're in better shape than we were in better form and their form has tailed off and you just look at the, the facts in the table their goals against is absolutely woeful and even though our defense hasn't been great at times i mean they've shipped an extra 12 12 goals 13 goals so i'm kind of thinking boxing day I don't imagine they're going to come up to Aberdeen and do anything other than try and grind out, take a point type thing. And, you know, that that's fine. I'm not being critical. So if we take that view, I'm actually reasonably confident that we can deal with that because we got through St. Johnston. We got through Livingston, you know, a couple of home, uh, well, home and away games, you know, a couple of games where we thought these are actually pretty good tests because we've struggled against teams that try and make it difficult. The Samirin game, we thought St. Mirren would be open and play a little bit more, and that, that proved to be the case, and actually we handled that quite well. So to me, I expect to win. I expect to win by a couple of goals, and I should point out the obvious that we need to win. I know there's still half a season left, but again, if we're going to try and claw 
anything back out of this season and get up the table, you need to be beating Dundee at home. It wouldn't really matter what sort of run of form either team was in. You need to be getting three points. So we need three points and I expect three points. I think as well, it's interesting. It's like, I'm sure this is not the way the professionals look at it, but, you know, Dundee was a pretty dark day for Stephen Glass as manager of Aberdeen. You know, that's when we were not, 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 not that we were, but the the vast bulk of that stand were ch- chanting, you know, Stephen, get the fuck sacked in the morning, blah, blah, blah. Almost from a symbolic stance, it's, uh, it would be really good to just take this game to Dundee and really put in a result, you know, a la what we did back all those glorious years ago when, when Andrew Constantine scored a hat-trick against them. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point, Gav. I think if you listen to the Red TV interview with Stephen Glass about this week, I think it becomes really clear that the Dundee match at Dens really was a a game that really affected the squad, not just the play, not just the manager, but the squad as well. Um, so I think you're right. I, I, and Stephen Glass made mention actually about the fact that they really want to put right that particular game. Now I don't know if that was just because they know it's coming up in the next couple of fixtures, so therefore they were making reference to it. But it sounded to me as though it was very much a that's a game we have to kind of sort out the way we performed in that match. I think what's interesting about that is Graham's has touched on is the amount of goals they've shipped 35 this season, the worst defence in the league by a country mile. Um, we didn't really threaten at all at Dens, um, apart from like the last five minutes, basically. Um, and even then, we didn't really create a proper clear-cut opportunity, I didn't feel. I think they're going to come up here. I think you guys are right. They're going to come up here and do probably what Livingston tried to do to us, try to make it difficult, try to make it niggly, try to disrupt the game. I think we need a strong referee. I don't know who the referee actually is for next week. I don't know if it's even been announced yet. Um, but I was talking about it with somebody online <clears throat> this week about how in Scottish football, we tend to praise referees for, and you see it a lot in old firm games in particular, praising referees for letting things go and giving players a couple of you know opportunities to make fouls and stuff before they bring the cards out. And it's like, nah, I'm sorry, I don't agree with that. If it's a booking in the th- five seconds in the game, it's a booking. It shouldn't be a case of, well, it's too early in the match to bring a card out. We saw it against Motherwell at Pataudry. Not that I'm saying this was the main cause of why we didn't beat Motherwell, but it didn't help matters was that Motherwell were allowed in that first 45 minutes to make things very niggly, very stop-start, with no real penalty against any of their players for doing so. I mean, Motherwell should have been down to 10 men after 30 minutes at Pataudry. For whatever reason, the referee decides not to give, um, I can't even remember the guy's name now, it was a second booking on the main stand side. I think it was Ojo had knocked the ball past him. He took him out. It was a booking all day long, but the referee clearly thought, because I've already booked him early in the game, I can't possibly send him off on just 30 minutes. You need a strong referee in games like this to, to, to stamp out that sort of attempt to make things niggly, stop, start, etc. But I am very heartened by the fact that against Livingston, we, we overcame that. And especially against St. Johnston, where they tried to kind of make it a pretty shithouse kind of game. We stood up to it. We battled through it. And that was something I think that all three of us were a bit dubious about whether we had that character in the squad just three or four weeks ago. And it's good to see that. And hopefully we can kind of continue that against Dundee on Boxing Day because that's exactly what I expect. Yeah, would agree with the point about the referee. We even saw it today in the cup final. Mm, mm. Uh, two minutes in, you know, Lewis Stevenson makes a... Oh, it's, a bu- it's, it's not a bad tackle, but it was a, def- it was a, booking, a booking all day long. It's an absolute booking. And because it's two minutes in, the referee's like, well, you know, I'll let it go. And then 20 minutes later, a Celtic player makes a, you know, far less, a far more innocuous challenge and then it's a booking. And the referees make just rods for their backs and then beat and lost control of the game for the next like 20 minutes. 
Yes, yeah. you heard me right. Beaten, lost control of the game. But he did because the next booking that happened, the next foul that happened after he gave a he gave a foul against Taylor. Um, the yellow went to the boy Uranovich, I think, and then yeah, I can't remember who it was, but it was like a it was a booking, and that was also a booking. That that there was no doubt about that. But you could see the Celtic players in there, like, what's the difference between that? In fact, the Stevenson challenge was probably worse, actually, in fairness. And then before you know it, Beaton's just throwing yellow cards around, like fucking Christmas cards. Um, it was on. It was there was one booking he gave the Hibs player. I'm convinced he already had the card in his hand before, like just as he was running. It was like he hadn't even put it back in his pocket from the last booking yet. So we do. We really need to see a strong, a strong refereeing performance. Bear, bear in mind that you know we've had a referee saying that you know because Funza Ojo walked towards the support, he had to follow the letter of the law. So they keep saying when it's convenient that, yeah, it's just, it's the rules. We have to follow through on it. But then in that case like that, I'm not aware of anything in the rule book of football that says, well, it's in the first five minutes, so it's okay. Exactly. And what you need to avoid as well is a scenario, which you see a lot of where players almost take it in turns in a team. Oh, yeah. To go around fouling people and breaking the game up. Again, I expect that's what we're going to see on Boxing Day. So it does need a strong referee just to, to, to kind of stamp it out early doors. But we can't just rely on a referee either. We need to do it ourselves. It'll be interesting to see what happens with us at Easter Road on Wednesday night and whether or not we have a similar sort of lineup to Easter Road. For me, it seems like a game, again, similar to Livingston St. Mary, where you probably put Jet in here. I think he does give you that little bit of a focal point up there to try and pull midfielders, pull defence in and around them and open up space for other players. It's a game where we should be on the front foot and they are coming up like we think they were to be sort of niggly. You probably can afford likes of a jet or someone because they're unlikely to be breaking on mass every time they're playing the ball out of defence. So you probably can run the risk of carrying him a little bit because you're probably going to get the ball back and it'll turn it over and then he's there to you know to use his skill and his vision um, and link link people up. So I can see the I can see the argument for having him there. But yeah, like you guys are saying. The refereeing point is valid, but be really disappointing. We've got more than enough to get past Dundee, in my opinion. So yeah, okay, you can't be allowing people to hack our players because that will spoil the flow of the game. But we've got more than enough quality, and just the sheer number of goals they're conceding suggests that a bit like we were at the start of the season, just get the ball in and around the box, and something's likely to happen. So I'm pretty confident that we can um, we can get through that. Jet conversation is also valid because, of, as we mentioned last week, the presence of him draws defenders into his area. And we saw against Dundee the difference. Well, it didn't prove to be the difference, but you know what was a marked improvement was when Marley Watkins came onto the pitch and he started getting the ball and started running at the Dundee defense. Yeah, absolutely. If you then allow for, if you allow for Jet to be there to be drawing people in, creating space for the likes of Watkins and Hedges to then you know put the balls into the box or create chances for themselves or Ramirez, then yeah, I'm very confident the way things are going that we can uh, that we can get some goals against Dundee. So predictions then for the Dundee match on Boxing Day. Again, it's difficult to do this because, again, we, we don't know what's happening on Wednesday night against Hibs, but let's go for it. Second statement of intent, 4-1. Christian Ramirez hat-trick. First hat-trick for Ramirez and Jet's going to get one. I'll be, I'll be slightly more cautious, 2-0. And I think Watkins will be due a goal. He said Ramirez was going to get one thing going against Hibs. So Matty Kennedy to make a rare appearance oh, and score a goal. There we go. There we go. <laughs> I believe he's fitting in training, so I don't know if that's totally unrealistic. Uh, Aberdeen 3, Dundee 0. 
Marley Watkins with a double jet is going to get one. The only three points that Charlie Adam will be collecting on Boxing Day will be on his drive home. I think you get more than three points from he did. <laughs> I think you do, yeah. I just I thought, I thought we just had to make a topical reference, but there we go. Just a quick one. Are we going to keep our wager on if Jet scores in one of these two games? You know what? It's kind of become a lucky charm, so yeah, go for it. Yeah, fuck it. Jet scores. Three of those Jet t-shirts are winging their way to ABC FP headquarters this week. Let's move on. So in other news from Patology this week, no women's match to discuss as they are not back in action until January, but Amy Strath had left the Aberdeen women's team this week. Going on to focus on her personal fitness career. So all the best to Amy Strath, part of the team that got promoted back to SWPL1. I'm sure she leaves the club with the best of wishes from Emma Hunter, Gavin Beath and everyone associated with them. On to Lone Watch though, and in the Highland League, no games for Tyler McKayta or Kevin Hanratty. Or Jamie Shingler, for that matter, with for Martin United and Keith's games both postponed. Tom Ritchie and Jack McIver both played the full of 90 minutes for Huntley as they won 4-1 against Lossiemouth. Go on, Buzz. Jack Milne came off the bench for Brecon City and scored as they ran out 4-0 winners against Devon Vale. Connor Barron and Keenan Nguyenia both started as Kelty Hearts maintained their fantastic run in League 2 with a 4-0 win at Stranraer. Mark Gallagher came off the bench for the final 30 minutes as Forfra Athletic beat Edinburgh City 4-0 on Friday night under the lights. No Ryan Duncan in the Peterhead squad as they beat Dumbarton by three goals to two. Michael Ruth was an unused substitute as Falkirk's bargain basement Derek McInnes lookalike manager got his career up and running against East Fife, but that match was abandoned with the Bairns a goal to the good. When your luck's out, your luck's fucking out, innit? And finally, Luke Turner kept his place in the starting lineup for Cliftonville as they saw off Carrick Rangers by two goals to nil in the Northern Irish Premiership, which they still top two points clear of Linfield, who have a game in hand. And let's move on. Last week was the 118th annual general meeting of Aberdeen Football Club. Big talking points out of the AGM itself. Jack McKenzie signing a new deal with the club, seeing him committed to the Dons until June 2025. I'm sure that gets a resounding thumbs up from all of us here on the ABZ Football Podcast. Good piece of business, that. Yep, definitely. I was really pleased to see that. Excellent stuff. Some interesting insight from Stephen Gunn regarding Darren Mowbray and his appointment as the head of player recruitment. And Stephen Gormel, who joined from Celtic as head of performance analysis. Indications from Stephen Gunn that we've been working very hard over the last few months on priorities in terms of positions we're aiming to fill in both the January and summer transfer windows in 2022. And indications were that Mowbray has spent most of the last couple of months watching games in Europe. Now, I'm presuming that doesn't just mean England, uh, but that is certainly an indication that potentially our net is being spread a tad further than in recent years, gents. I think we share the view of many an Aberdeen fan and saying that we've been a little bit frustrated by our limited scouting network uh, in the last 10 years so to see us looking in different markets hopefully with a view to these players actually coming in and playing for Aberdeen and not you know being here for a year and then going to Atlanta um all being well there yeah positive positive signs yeah very much I think we we spoke about this point way back weeks months ago what it boiled down to was if we continue doing what we've always done then how are we ever going to push on so a different approach definitely feels like uh, the way to go so if we have been looking in markets that we're not really too familiar with you know personally as, as a fan 
then that's got to be good. Uh, hopefully we can do some decent business out of that and get some, you know, maybe different types of players that we've been used to. Hopefully though, it just means that Darren Mowbray's not been taking the piss on expenses, eh? And we're not just going to sign a bunch of guys out of League Two, but he's just spent the last three months watching, I don't know, like El Clasico and stuff. Well, I guess we'll find out in January. I'd like to be in on that, like the meeting, if it's like that Sunderland documentary <laughs> oh, when the guy that... recommends Latin Ibrahimovic, you know? That, I still think that might be... In that Sunderland documentary, there are two things which are brilliant. One is Simon Grayson coming in for his first day and doing a presentation to them using a flip chart and just watching the entire room just be like, not buying into this guy on day one. And then, yeah, the guy coming in when they're... Where are Sunderland at that point? They're in the championship. Yeah. And the recruitment guy comes in and is like, Ibrahimovic is a free agent. I think you're neglecting to mention the end part of that documentary when some guy calls Chris Coleman a prick and Coleman says, you call me a prick, I'm a married man with six kids. That's also that is Which also is just amazing. the most bizarre retort to being called a prick I've ever heard of. Yeah, really, really odd. I can't for the life of me fathom why Jack Ross presumably watched that Netflix documentary and thought, you know what, I'll take that job. It always really upsets me that the beginning scene of that documentary is not the guy, what was the chief exec's name? The guy was at Rangers. Martin Bain. Yeah, Martin Bain. The beginning should have been him coming back to the airport with like, you know, Mickey Mouse ears on his head, having just been rejected <laughs> by Derek McInnes. That would have been... <laughs> having been thoroughly rinsed by Derek McInnes, just getting a bigger contract out of Stuart Milne and sent back from Florida with the Mickey Mouse ears on. Yeah. Strong rumours still abound about Jamie McGrath being back on our radar from St. Mirren and... I think if we were betting men, there's a good chance we think that McGrath ends up at Pataudry sooner rather than later, gents. I'll take your word for it. The rumours don't really do much for me until he's there with his scarf aloft. It's just uh, media noise. Um, yeah, we've we've heard that he's um, definitely on our radar, as you say, and um, I think he'd be a good addition. He's a good player. I think it would definitely mean that something is happening in terms of someone leaving the club. And yeah. it'll be someone with uh, a much more significant presence in our team than Matty Longstaff. So it would be interesting, it'll be interesting to see what uh, what his incoming means in terms of repercussions outgoing. Yeah, it, it never got touched on at the AGM for obvious reasons because they've got more important stuff to talk about than Matty Longstaff. But clearly there's been a lot of chat in the last couple of days about the fact that Newcastle are talking about terminating the, the loan contract with us to bring him back. Oh. Um, <laughs> thank God for that is all I can say, I think. Um one of the other key points that came out of the, the uh, AGM, and Gav, I think this is one of your personal interest topics, Mikey Devlin looks like he might be given another contract for another six months to work out whether or not we can get him fit or not. Yeah, off the back of a, a six-month contract to prove his fitness. I've seen, <laughs> I've seen people talking on Twitter that we have a duty of care to him. I think we've been very, very good to Michael Devlin, given the limited... Um, it's not really been a relationship of give or take, Let's just say that. Um, and I've never been convinced that he's been good enough to play, even when he was fully fit. If he was to prove his fitness, he would be fifth choice centre-back at Aberdeen right now. Maybe even sixth choice with Scott Brown. So I think there are areas of the pitch that need improving. And I don't see the benefit in Michael Devlin being here, quite frankly. And like I say, it's a sick, he was given a six-month deal to prove his fitness. And I've never seen a picture of him in training. Oh, no. In fairness, there were pictures of him in training. When? It seems like a couple months ago now, actually. 
because a couple of months ago I was under pressure, he was on holiday wearing a boot. He's not fit. He hasn't been fit. They, I think they said that he, they'd expect him maybe around February to be starting training properly <laughs> or to be available for selection. If you're given a six-month deal to prove your fitness and you're not fit, how are you given another six-month contract to prove your fitness? If you're given a six-month contract to prove your quality and you don't prove your quality, that's it. Yeah, I think we've been very good to Michael Devlin and yeah, I think it's time to cut that cord. In fairness, the picture I did see of him was like upper body only. So he could have like been like... In a wheelchair or something. Yeah. He like... Andrew Constantine suffered a cruciate knee injury in August and I've seen more progress within him than Devlin. It's a very fair point. Let's move on because I just wanted to wind you up about Mikey Devlin, to be quite honest. I, I just, I can't get my head around people that think <laughs> that he is... I saw someone saying that if it was a choice between him and Scott McKenna, they'd pick Michael Devlin. Devlin's uh, best football came at Hamilton. <laughs> if McKenna suffered all the injury problems Devlin has, would Devlin be, have gone to England for a £7 million transfer fee? Well, no, but McKenna didn't go for £7 million either, but never mind. It was, five, it was like £5 million raising to £7 million, but whatever. No, it was about three and a half. It was Anyway, never mind. It doesn't matter. I thought, personally speaking, I thought Michael Devlin's first season at Aberdeen when he was parted alongside McKenna, I thought he looked decent. And now I know you're going to say that McKenna did all the heavy lifting, whatever. Uh, but I agree with you. I, I, I absolutely agree with you, though, actually, about the fact that even if he's fit, he's probably our fifth or sixth choice centre half. And at what point do you decide that actually a guy, I'm presuming, I am presuming slash praying we're paying him peanuts at the moment on these deals um, just in order to allow to, to see if he can get himself fit and see what he can do. If we're paying any more than that, then I'm sorry. Like to be sixth choice centre half at Aberdeen, we might as well have one of our boys off the bench. Would be uh, one of our boys in the, in the USL is, is what we should be looking for. But let's move on from Mikey. A fee that could rise to six million. Okay, there we go. <laughs> um, on the stadium front, Dave Cormack indicated that if the beach plans go ahead, the chances are that we might look at the stadium being the ballpark of a fifteen to sixteen thousand capacity as opposed to twenty thousand, which is what Kingsford is meant to be. It cost appearing to be the main driver for this. Apparently, adding an additional four or five thousand seats might add about ten million quid to the overall budget cost for for building the stadium. Just what you're just a quick one on this one. I mean, it's still early doors on this idea about the stadium at the beach, but a stadium of fifteen, sixteen thousand for Aberdeen is that maybe us being a little bit unambitious in our view for our football club? That was my first thought. I understand we don't have bottomless pit of money to play with. So if it really does add 10 million, that's a, that's a huge sum of money. But my first thought was that's just, it's just not really a statement of intent. Is it? There's absolutely no ambition that we're ever going to push on or grow the club or be anything bigger than what we are. So I was a little bit disheartened, if I'm honest, when I saw that. I can, I can see where he's coming from because you look at the sort of the crowds and stuff like that, but I was kind of hoping the way we're setting the club up, new stadium, maybe that would be a time to really try and push on, but maybe we just need to be realistic. And I suppose there's an argument to say an almost full stadium every week is going to generate a better atmosphere than a stadium that's 50 60% full, for example, but I don't know, I'm not totally convinced. I decided, I mean, initially, yeah, when I heard it, I thought, uh, I'm not sure about that. But I guess, much like them, I can kind of see the logic in reducing the attendance. And to back that up, I thought I'd look at a season under McInnes. So this is Derek McInnes's third season at Aberdeen, where I'd say we're probably at our best in terms of the style. You know, the 
how excited we were to watch with Hayes and McGinn and I think Christie would have been here around about that time. And, you know, you've got Rooney scoring lots of goals and Kenny McLean's here, Logan, Considine up the wings. If you look at the attendances through that season, excluding the Celtic games at home, I don't think we topped 13,000 all season. And those attendances would also have been the ones where we were counting tickets sold by people who didn't attend. A lot of mixed feelings on it. I can see the logic in it. Um, I can see the appeal of having a full stadium as opposed to maybe a three-quarters full stadium. But um, I don't know. It seems like it doesn't quite seem like the statement of intent that a new stadium would should feel like. But um, yeah, I can see the, the logic behind their thinking. I mean, like I say, it's very early doors in this particular issue. There's no real clear idea whether we're still going to go ahead for this beach idea because I think we were probably expecting the council maybe to put up a little bit more money towards the stadium than what they appear to be willing to do. I wonder if this is a bit of a pressure move as well, a power move by Cormac to try and push the council into trying to, you know, come up with some funding for the stadium to make it into like a 18, 19,000 stadium. Uh, for me, it's a bit of a difficult one. I just think if we're talking, you know, Cormac's been in the, the Cormac and Wicks and the whole club have been talking about how they want to have 15,000 season ticket holders for the last little while. To then build a stadium that just wouldn't even allow you to do that because of those fifteen or 16,000 seats, a portion of that's going to have to be given away to away fans every week anyway. You're kind of shooting yourself in the foot to begin with. But hey, who knows? We'll see where this goes. It's another one in the same way as the philosophy. It's very mixed yeah. messages. Um, there's no clear, no clear statement there. So it's, yeah, it's a little bit frustrating again in that sense in terms of communication from the club. Absolutely. Let's move on. Fantasy Football Scotland update for this week. Um, I'm just going to get mine out of here really nice and early. I had an absolute shocker of a week. Four points. That's right, you heard that right. Four. That's what I had this weekend. Not great. What did you do or <laughs> not do? How many? <laughs> I, like, I, I don't know. I don't even know where to go with that. This is an audio-only podcast, but if you could see the exacerbation on Graham's face right now. Um, I just I didn't pay attention once again, and I've got a lot of players in my team who just didn't play this weekend that's it's, it's, it's worth mentioning that week week 19 does extend to the midweek games so there it, are still three matches to go it does absolutely so let's move on let's get away from me uh as it stands 25 points uh, mostly made up through hearts players the craig gordon and craig halkett and mugabe that mother watch you get to clean sheet as well so that's uh that's where my points are coming from yeah mugabe sitting on my bench with six points there we go I was quite delighted to see that the United players automatically ended up on my subs bench, but to be fair, they didn't do nearly as bad as I thought they were going to. No, that's true. That's true. Graham? 25 points as well. Nice. I only have Ramirez and Ferguson left to play. Well, actually, no, actually, that's not true. I think I've got some, I've got a couple of Smeltic players, so I'm maybe not too bad. 25 with a couple of games to go. Yeah, I've got six players uh, provisionally to play on, uh, well, maybe five because Turbo went off the hamstring injury today. So maybe five players. Yeah, he's ties. He won't be playing on, on Wednesday, I don't think. Look at the league itself. Jack Curran, his two turkeys maintain their lead. They've stretched out a little bit, actually. He's 35 points this week, 1,189. Giac Geese in second spot, 1,150. And then Campbell's Soup, 39 points, 1,146. He's tied with gold, frankincense, and gur. 32 points from James Tavinger, though, so... Uh, oh! Gone. Sorry, Dom, you're out of there. 
keep an eye on your fantasy football team. Make sure you do more than I do and try to keep up to date every week. Still some good prizes to be won. I'm sure that Jack Curran and his two turkeys can still be caught. And so that wraps up part one of this week's show. Please join us after the break for our exclusive interview with Icelandic footballing legend, Carrie Arneson. And to play us out, it's Colin Klein and his track, Where the Ships Go to Die. Check out Colin on Twitter at Colin Klein, C-L-Y-N-E. Here's Where the Ships Go to Die by Colin Klein.
This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is brought to you by Anderson Quantity Surveying. If you've engaged with an architect for your construction project, chances are they've provided you with an average cost per square metre for your project. But speak to AQS who can provide you with a fully broken down budget cost plan based on your feasibility or planning drawings. AQS's cost plan allows you to know right from the start if your design is affordable before you even apply for a building warrant. And it allows you to see where all your costs lie, enabling you to identify cost savings at the outset. To find out more, give AQS a call on 01224 502550 or email gary at andersonqs.co.uk Welcome back to the ABZ Football Podcast and we're delighted to bring you the latest in our interviews with Don's personalities of past and present and this one is a real exclusive, a man who made 65 appearances over two spells with Aberdeen, scoring six goals in the process and who man-marked Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi out of matches against his side in consecutive major finals. It's a legend of Icelandic football, a man who scored a thunder bastard at Tanadice. It's Carrie Arneson. Harry Arneson, welcome to the ABZ Football Podcast. How's it going? Yeah, good, good. Thank you. Good to be on. Carrie, well, no, listen, hey, the pleasure is is all ours. We're delighted to have you on board. Um, we were just talking before we started recording. I know that a lot of our listeners will really be looking forward to, to hearing from you. We can even probably claim this as an exclusive because I think it's definitely the first Aberdeen podcast interview you've done. So there we go. That's one to get in the get in the bag. And let's just start at the beginning. You're synonymous with the Icelandic national team and Icelandic f- football, but you were actually born in Gothenburg in, in 1982, which provides another Aberdeen connection with that famous Swedish city. When did you, when did you actually make the move back to back to Iceland? My parents were studying in in, in Sweden. Because I think back in the day you couldn't get like uh, a master's degree from from Iceland, and so they had to go abroad to to study a little bit more. So we lived there for about five years or so. Okay. So I came back when I was about five years old. Okay, cool. And so growing up, was football always your kind of sport of choice, or was there anything else that kind of piqued your interest as a kid? No, I used to play everything from. Uh, like, because I was a very active kid, I used to play, like, my mother used to send me out for all sorts of sports. So I played handball, I don't know if you know handball, yeah, yeah. Uh, basketball, tennis at one time. So, yeah, it was all over the shop. But football was always, I trained, like, football and tennis, football and handball, football and basketball, but it was always football. And growing up then, I guess, football team that you supported as a kid, and, and who was your first footballing hero you can remember? As a kid, I was never that into it. I just did whatever my older brother did. Okay. And he was a supporter of Liverpool. So I just tagged along. And I've never been, like, I'm, when I watch football, I, I I enjoy the football side of it, obviously. But I, I, I can't claim that I'm a massive supporter of any anyone, really. But growing up, it was Zidane. I, I always piqued my interest. I, I used to love watching him play. Have you ever have you seen the, the movie? No, I haven't. No, I haven't watched it yet. You need to. You need to watch it. I can't even remember what it's called, Gab. You might remember this one. Um, Is it not just called Zidane? 
I think it might be just called Zidane. Um, it's brilliant. <laughs> and we, we spoke about, just again, before we came on air about Carrie's love of music. It's soundtracked by a fantastic Scottish band called um, Mogwai. Oh, right. I remember I'm from back in the day. Yeah, so definitely get on that. That's absolutely what you need to look at. But Zidane, I think Zidane's the, that's the first time we've heard Zidane, I think, so far in, in 20 episodes. So there we go. It's taken a while to get him on. But there. Probably because I'm that old. That... <laughs> <laughs> no, trust me. Most other people are going way older. Don't worry oh, about it. <laughs> so, Carrie, Iceland, it's become like a real blueprint nation for how to develop players in, in recent years. And, you know, we in Scotland have probably been looking at it with great a great deal of envy until maybe a few maybe recently when we've kind of gotten right together a little bit did you yourself like see the changes as you were growing up in terms of like building facilities for youngsters to get involved in football i was moving abroad as they were being built i managed to play one one time in in the in one of the big domes over here but uh so i never but what i what i saw when i came back because i just i just retired this year from football so Played two seasons here, and what I saw is, is a there's a definite improvement in technical ability, but where I think it's a it's a double-edged sword, so to speak. Because back in the day, we used to send that all the boys that went abroad were like big, strong centre halves, uh, tough guys, really. And with the exception of Good Johnson, who mm-hmm. was just born with with ability uh, and it came down from generation and and he grew up abroad with this old man being a professional footballer so he got a better schooling than the rest of us now we're lacking that toughness that we used to have so it's yeah it's we need to bring some of that back along with the 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 better technique that that the young players are having to to get some some form of uh I don't know, continuity, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, we ha- so Aberdeen drew Breitelblik in the Europa Conference League this previous summer. And we certainly saw, even for a, a part-time Icelandic team, some really good technical players. So you can see that that yeah. element and obviously that toughness you were talking about. It's what was the, the foundation of the success that Iceland had as a national team. I think we can all agree. You yourself, you came through the setup at Viking. Or when did you realize, or maybe... Was there any moment that made you think that you had a real chance of making a professional career as a footballer? Uh, I never really thought about it. I, I was always decent. Like as a as a kid, I wasn't the best one in my age group. I had a decent head on my shoulder, I suppose. Uh, quite aggressive personality uh, back in the day. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> uh, but when I was around twenty, I got like a. A manager, Siggy Olsen, used to play for Dundee United. He was actually a very good footballer. He signed for Arsenal at one stage, played for Sheffield, oh, Sheffield Wednesday when they were in the Premier League. And he told me, yeah, I see you as you could get 20 caps for Iceland. And that kind of sparked my interest. So I thought, all right, I, I got something here and like kept developing under him. And... Uh, he he like liked me, so I played every game and 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 kept developing and and eventually I got offered uh, like a professional contract in in Sweden. Yeah, I mean we'll we'll come on to that in a second, I guess, when you made the move to Sweden. But you eventually made your way into the first team set up at Vikinger in in two thousand and one, and you stayed there until two thousand and four. But this was also interspersed with some spells in America where you played with. Uh, I'm, I'm going to get the pronunciation for this wrong, probably, but the Gonzaga 
University Bulldogs and Adelphi Panthers. I'm presuming these were opportunities for you to kind of keep furthering your education alongside football. Yeah, that, that was always big in my family, especially my father. He, he like he he was actually quite a decent footballer himself, and uh, he got offered to to play in France at one stage, and then he uh, tore his uh, cruciate. Okay, and that kind of like put an end to his career. He, he ended it, like studying to become a, a GP, and so he. He always saw it as a fickle world. It could be over in a heartbeat. And uh, so he was always pushing me towards education and kind of like belittling the, the world of football in a, in a sense. So, and this was just, and I, at this stage, I, I wasn't sh- like, I, I didn't think I had what it took to, to become a footballer. So I thought, I mean, this is one of the best contracts you could get as a young footballer to go abroad. I mean, the, the tuition alone were like, 60 grand a year or something yeah and you get free housing free food and you have a time of uh, have the time of your life and, and the studies were a piece of piss so <laughs> it was it, it was i had a great time excellent that's what i like to hear so um it's interesting though because i think that whenever whenever i speak to and whenever we speak to any kind of f- footballers who haven't come from you know scotland or, or even from the uk it's it's always really apparent, I think, in in most cases, that the people seem to have their heads screwed on a bit more, and they kind of look at football as this would be brilliant to do it, but I recognise this could be a career that could end in a moment, and and they have always already thought in the back of their head, what am I going to do if this doesn't work out? And it's interesting that this doesn't seem to really still be something that happens a lot um, in, in this country, and that you see so many players who fail to make the grade because it's still such a small number of guys who come through youth setups and actually make it to the to the top of the game who then just drop out and kind of fall by the wayside yeah i mean probably all the kids in the youth teams doesn't matter which club it is in scotland would be good enough to play american college level or like it is university it's not the same as as england but uh yeah at that level any player in the youth setup. I'm pretty sure they'll be able or capable to play in that league and possibly dominate. Yeah. But yeah, if the grades aren't there and with the with the language barrier, it would be perfect for a lot of them. And I think they should be pushed into that more from the youth team manager or whoever's in charge. They can see early doors if they're gonna make it or not. Like are they are they willing to scrap in the lower leagues of Scotland? Maybe making, I don't know how much they make, but eventually this is a better career move. Yeah. You enjoy your football. You can always come back and play the lower leagues after you get your degree. But, uh, I mean, if you're good enough, because you're, you're keeping fit, you're actually playing football for three years, or three yeah. or four years. So it's not like you've left to go to school and you're not played football at all. You're actually playing football for four years. You've got to come back, get a job on the side, whatever. I think there's an opportunity there because a lot of the boys they just I don't I don't know they play lower league I mean it's a wage but then when they're 32 careers over they hadn't haven't made real money really yeah it's a tough watch absolutely and I wonder if it might be something that Aberdeen might develop further and obviously with the link up that they've got with Atlanta United now in, in the States that that might be something there's been a lot of talk about trying to you know introduce some synergies between our youth setups and all that kind of stuff you wonder if that might be an avenue that they even 
start to consider. But let's turn back to yourself again, um, Carrie. Obviously, after putting in a series of impressive performances for Vikinger, you're then signed by uh, your garden of the Swedish Allsvenskan in November 2004. And was that the kind of moment for you where you thought, yes, I've made it as a professional? Yeah, I mean, I was happy that I made that first step, but I was never contempt until I played. And the problem with this team is it was too strong of a team for a first move. I mean, mm. they were the reigning champions, double champions. They were in the group stages of the Champions League, if I remember correctly, the year before yeah. or two years before. So it was a very strong team. And I had to fight tooth and nail to get into that team. And to be honest, I didn't make any friends doing it. <laughs> yeah, just chopping people down in training and, and whatnot. But I eventually I played. I started most of the games, I think. But as soon as I had an off off game, I, I was the first one to go. Or like we lost, I was the first one to go to the bench. But eventually we won the double and uh, it was quite a good time. But I didn't really enjoy it because it was so, it was... It was full on. I was like full on in training every day, like trying to scrap my way into the team. Mm. So it took a lot, of, took a lot, a lot out of me. And uh, eventually, I, I, I felt that I had to move. I, I kind of painted myself into a corner there, with like <laughs> I didn't have any friends on the team or anything. But uh, yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, I mean, you've just touched on obviously in the two thousand and five season. Uh, your gardens win the, the league and the cup double um, those are obviously your first set of trophies as a professional footballer did that kind of drive a hunger in you to get more trophies win more medals go on from that uh, I never really thought about it that way obviously you want to win every game that you play and if 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 you're successful at that trophies will come but I, I, I never thought about it that way I mean it depends on what the ambitions of the club Ah, you can't go into like a team that you know going to be mid-table before. Obviously, you go into every game and you want to win. You try your utmost to win the game. But I always looked at it one game at a time kind of thing and, and not be like hungry for silverware or anything. Like that. Okay. I, I never like, I just want to win every game that I play. And it's during this time in Sweden that you also pick up your first call-up and then your first cap for Iceland. In terms of just your own personal pride and for your family, getting that initial international recognition must have been a really, a really proud moment for you. Yeah, it was. But at this time, I was, I was quite young, and I, uh, I was always looking. I never like sat still and thought, "Yeah, wow, what an achievement" or something like that. I always kept wanting more. All right, I've been called up. I, I want to play this game. I want to get myself into the team. And it was the same mentality. I went to that training camp trying to chop people down that were playing my position, like absolutely <laughs> silly. But I didn't know anything about the game. Like no one in my family had played. And like back in the day, the agents, they weren't helping you to settle or how, okay, how are you going to play this out? I was just thinking in the moment, all right, I'm getting myself in the team here. Eh? I'm going to show them. Like that kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. Which is all right, in but in the long term, it, it's not going to do you any good. <laughs> yeah. By any chance, Carrie, are you a fan of Sergio Ramos? Uh, no, 
Uh, okay, okay. Just, just, just wondering, just clocking some similarities there. Uh, I mean, yeah, he's an unbelievable player, but yeah, not not a big fan. Um, so, Caddy, you might need to clear this up regarding your international debut because we've been known to get our research wrong. It looks to us, from what we can see, that you came off the bench in a friendly match against Italy in the 77th minute and you were sent off three minutes later. Is that correct? <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> what happened? This is what I'm talking about. Like, very aggressive. And so I came on straight. Uh, yeah, there's a bit of play. Italy get a corner. And I'm, I can't remember who I was marking, but like, they had some like, decent players on the pitch, like well-known names. And he's, he's like trying to break free from me, man marking him. And then he just punches me in the eye. And I used to wear contact lenses at the time. And one of them falls out and I can't see anything. And uh, I'm like looking for the lens, like the, the ball comes in. I'm just, I can't see anything. So I just jump. Nothing happens, fortunately. Goal kick for us. I still can't see anything. <laughs> Because I'm blind on one eye, like the focus is all off. Ball comes in. Some of some from like someone from us like flicks on the left back has it. I like I used to play midfield back in the day, so I come steaming in. Fabio Grosso is going to play one into the towards the corner flag, our corner flag into the channel, and I absolutely <laughs> smash him. Knee height, I got a picture of it and everything. And there's no question the ref's mind straight red. <laughs> I think it was like two minutes and 30 seconds gone. I thought, okay, that's it. Never playing here again. <laughs> it's it's quite the debut. Yeah, terrible. <laughs> I just saw red. I was absolutely fuming. I'm amazed you were able to see him still. Yeah, that's probably why I didn't get the ball, to be honest. <laughs> All about the depth perception. That's what it was. It wasn't anything yeah, else. That's it, yeah. That's it, definitely. Um, so you, you spend a couple of seasons in Sweden and then you made the move to uh, Aarhus in the Danish Superliga, uh, which also had a short spell at um, Esbjerg on loan. And once your contract in Denmark comes to an end, that's when you make your first move over the North Sea to the British Isles, ending up on trial at Plymouth Argyle, who at that time, for um, our listeners who might need to be reminded, they were actually in the championship uh, in England at that point. And I think I read somewhere you, you talk about I don't think you expected you were going on trial necessarily to Plymouth, um, but turned up on on day and post. I could basically got about two hundred guys lined up for a set of trial matches. Yeah, yeah, it was madness. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I had a falling out with the manager at, uh, at Aarhus, and because the the guy who got me there, Uwe Pedersen, he's called, he uh, he got sacked. A new guy came in and he just wrote me off straight off the bat. So I, I had a bit of falling out with him. So I went on loan to Esberg. By this time, I'd played uh, 25 caps or something. So I, I knew I, I wasn't a name or anything. But I, I, so when I was making the move to, to England, I said, all right, I, I'm willing to go on trial. But I want there to be genuine interest, not like, all right, we'll have a look at him. Like, yeah. he's good enough to play here, but we'll have a look and see if he's fit or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, my agent at the time said, yeah, yeah, yeah no problem, no problem. We'll, we'll sort that out. So, for, like, and I was, was going to do a series of trials, like one after the other. 
And Plymouth was the first stop. And you're right, like when I turn up very unfit, straight from my summer holidays, Paul Sturrock's lined up, honestly, it was about 40, 50 players from all over the world, from Asia, Africa, Australia, literally everywhere. And they had no clue. They didn't know our names. They had no clue who we are, who we were. And they started off by asking which position we played. And I think 85% of them said number 10. Yeah, I'm a number 10. Of course, yeah. So we were playing like number 10s at centre-back and all sorts. And it was just complete chaos. And Paul Stokes sat up on a hill and watched like, <laughs> I don't know, 180 minutes of football. And it, yeah, it was, it was a shambles. But yeah, he singled me out and I, he offered me a contract. Well, here we go. One out of 50 is not bad, is it? Yeah, so, no. Must have been something about you as a number 10 there, so. Yeah. <laughs> and um, obviously you do enough at, at Plymouth because you, you you sign a one-year deal initially and then after just six months, you sign a two-year extension. But in February 2011, Plymouth announced that they're going to go into administration. They're docked 10 points and that brought Plymouth down to the bottom of League One, um, ultimately being relegated to the bottom tier at the end of that season. So it's back-to-back relegations. And at that time, with the whole administration fiasco, you'd not received any wages since I think it was December 2010. And, and then you end up being released by Plymouth in June of 2011 because you failed to reach an agreement with the administrators about deferring your wages any further. I mean, that must be an incredibly like, unsettling and difficult period to be involved in as a, as a player. Yeah, it was. It was. And I mean, I've always been just because of my upbringing, I've been good with my money. So it didn't affect me in as badly as it did some of the players. And I mean, I had a player move in with me just because he couldn't afford rent. And uh, yeah, it was, it was tough times, but it was still enjoyable. I still enjoyed playing football and, and it was kind of the same, but it was a lot of frustration and, and like, what if you get injured and, and, the PFA, the English PFA, to be honest, they they didn't help the situation. They, not really. Uh, they told us half truths and 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 just trying to make us play really, mm-hmm. when there was no there was no real uh, guarantee that that we would get paid in the end, no matter how much they owed us. Yeah. Uh, and but they kept like not promising but like stating that yeah you'll get paid as soon as they come out of administration and you, you don't know the rules really but what happens is whoever buys the club will then try to negotiate you like down so they owe you eight months and you've played every game that those eight months and you've like tried your best done your job but then they'll come all right we'll offer you 50 percent yeah, exactly. Your old or whatever it is. I mean, and so it was. It wasn't really. Yeah, everyone is expecting. All right, as soon as they come out of administration, you get all your money. No problems. Plymouth wasn't really the kind of club that the administrator at the time believed that was big enough that someone would buy it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he wasn't willing to fork out any of his money. And then he would get paid off the whoever bought the club. Yeah. So we got nothing. It was literally you got nothing <laughs> for eight months. And then 
Yeah, and all these deferral of wages. And I just got fed up with it in summer and said, no, I'm not going to sign it. And then, yeah, you're sacked with immediate effect. I was on the golf course, actually, when I got the email through. And as it is, you end up on trial with Hearts for a week as they visit Italy for a preseason camp. You just let us know your impressions of Hearts. Um, I've had to remind myself now of where they were as a club at that time. And Romanov was still in charge, massive squad. Not the most financially stable club either, if I might yeah. add. Your impressions and any reason that maybe you weren't offered a deal there? Yeah, I think the squad wasn't really, it wasn't a humble squad. It was like kind of clicky and didn't really like many of the boys there. But uh, but it wasn't the strongest of squads either, mm-hmm. to be honest. I, I just think I, I didn't do well enough. I was, uh, was straight off the holidays and I... During the holidays, I used to play, I played like for most most of my career. After I came to UK, I played like 40, 50 games during the season. So I used the time to rest, and then I thought, all right, preseason, there's enough time to get fit. No worries, because I don't stack on weight or anything. It's just mm-hmm. getting your lungs right, and uh, I just didn't do well enough and wasn't prepared for it. It's all right. Fuck hearts. Doesn't matter. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> we'll ask you who you really didn't like after the interview. <laughs> so uh, then you end up on trial. Craig Brown and Archie Knox must be getting on the phone. You impress there and you put pen to paper on a one-year contract at Pataudry to join Aberdeen on the 22nd of July, 2011. Before joining Aberdeen, like, what did you know about the club and did you know much about Scottish football really? I didn't know a lot about Scottish football. Obviously, after I came to the UK, I knew more and more. Uh, I played with uh, Clarkey uh, down at... Of course, Lemon. yeah. yeah. And so I knew enough and he told me only good things. So I was happy for a new challenge and, and try Scottish football. I mean, the more you try, the more you know. And uh, I was, in hindsight, very happy to sign with Aberdeen rather than Hearts. Good lad, good lad. Tell us your first impressions of Craig Brown and Archie Knox. Archie Knox is is brilliant. He is hilarious. Uh, so funny, man. But I mean, it, it, it's, it was old school. It was, uh, and I like that. I mean, it, it wasn't anything, uh, what do you say, complicated. It was just like football, play. It was like simple football. And, uh, but he's a, he's a, like such an uh, experienced manager and, and, yeah, trust in me, and, and, and I love my time under him. And this was Archie. This was calm Archie when you guys got to him. He was yeah, mellow by the yeah. time I you mean, guys got to Archie. Calm as you can get. <laughs> was there a few hair dryers in there from Archie? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, of course there was. But there was no, you could always sense Archie was never anything personal about it. Yeah. And it was like he, he wouldn't dig you out because he didn't like you personally. He would dig you out genuinely because he, he thought it wasn't good enough. Yeah, it was all for the good of the team. It was always like in a professional manner. You wouldn't take it to heart. You'd go, all right, yeah, yeah I, see what, I hear you. And at the time you joined, I mean, Aberdeen are in a real kind of state of flux is probably the best way to describe Aberdeen at that point. Um, Craig Brown and, and, and Archie, they'd been appointed midway through the season before. They'd kind of steered Aberdeen away from a potential relegation scrap um, and ending up in ninth spot. And there was a 
a number of new players arrived at Aberdeen that summer, including yourself, obviously. And, and, and by the end of the campaign, Aberdeen have used over 30 players during that season. Can you remember what was the main objective of the management team um, that they were looking to achieve that season? Was it just simply a case of trying to stabilise, trying to get a little bit further at the table? Or was there a view that the team could really go on and aim for a much higher finish in the league? I, I can't really remember, but I think we had belief that we could do something like... There were, I think there was. Uh, we were trying to stabilize, but at the same time, I thought we had enough quality within the group to actually do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but eventually, it didn't turn out that way. But uh, I mean, I thought we were lacking goals. That, that's what we were lacking. But I thought we had a decent defense and and a lot lot of decent players there. There was just a little something missing. That period of time, I think. Yeah, that 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 sort of that sort of spell almost until Adam Rudy joined Aberdeen um, with 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 Darren McInnes in 2014. We were really lacking a goal scorer. Scott Vernon came in and Scott did well initially, but he needed some support. You you made your competitive debut for Aberdeen coming off the bench in a in an opening day nil nil draw with with St Johnston. What was your kind of first impressions of the standard and the pace of the game in Scotland? I mean, I was coming from England at the time, so the pace didn't bother me. It was it was similar football. It was tough, like balls in the air a lot. So I was used to that from the League One days, and uh, I mean the Championship as well. But uh, the atmosphere was brilliant, and uh, it was a nice day if I remember correctly. So it was yeah, this is this is decent, and uh, it felt yeah, it felt a massive club. What did you think about playing at Pataudry? Did you like Pataudry as a, as a stadium to play at? Yeah, until the harshest winter comes and the seagulls uh, start to roam, then uh, it's like, oh, wow. And that's an Icelander saying that, so that's, yeah. not, that's not great, you know. But we don't play in the winter, you see. Well, this is true, yeah, that's a fair point, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I distinctly recall your debut, and I'm not just saying this because you're on the show, but I remember just thinking, this guy is a real player. Thank you. Thank you. Felt like we unearthed a bit of a gem there. It's a ropey start for the Dons, you know, four defeats and a draw in the league in the opening five games before a home win against Inverness Cali Thistle. Get things going. While things were not going great for the team, as I mentioned just there, you were performing well and you're impressing in the center midfield, already becoming a fan favorite, one of the first names on the team sheet. Were you feeling pretty settled in Aberdeen at this point? I did. I did. I felt so good. I felt like everyone. And I've always been grateful to Aberdeen fans and Greg Brown and Archie and everyone around the club and, and the players at the time. So I always had a connection with Aberdeen and I played some of my best football there. It was just, it was rumours of like a larger move in January because I played like half of the season was really good. But then as, and then contract negotiations broke down with Aberdeen and like nothing panned out and so my form dip and I, I, I admit that very openly that my form dipped and, and the later stages of the season were not good enough to say the least. What did you make of Aberdeen as a city just to live if you ignore the harsh winter and the 25 million seagulls? <laughs> the seagulls mate, you need to get rid of them. <laughs> An abomination. Uh, I, swear, I swear to God they know they're protected. <laughs> I don't understand why, but uh, I loved it. It was a, it was a, such a good group, and and uh, we had a great Christmas do going to Newcastle, and and like I, I loved it to be honest. I'm not just saying that. 
And just kind of like on the point then of that season, and as you say, that first six months you played really, really well. Probably one of the standout players in the league, if I might say. What's it like as a player knowing that you individually are having a good time, you're playing well, but things are just not really quite clicking for the team? Yeah, it's frustrating, but all you can do is like, obviously you get frustrated with players if they're not doing the business but uh, at the end of the day, you, you just focus on yourself and, and try to keep a good momentum going. Speaking of not clicking, um, we have to touch on this one. Um, September 20th, 2011, it's a home tie against East Fife in the third round of the League Cup. And East Fife take a surprise lead. Aberdeen get themselves 2-1 ahead. And then East Fife score two goals in three minutes to make it 3-2. Uh, it takes a last-minute Rory Fallon penalty. To, to stop Aberdeen exiting in normal time. Eventually, the game goes to penalties. Now, you score your penalty, but East Fife actually go through 4-3 on penalty kicks that night. And this is kind of one of the low points um, for Aberdeen in terms of cup exits to lower league sides. Can you remember much about that game at all? And I guess I, I'm kind of almost really intrigued to see what the kind of response of the management team, particularly Archie probably, would have been like after, the, after that game. Was this a pitotry? It was, yeah. Honestly, I cannot remember that. Blanked it out. Yeah, I must have. Yeah, I must have just cut that out. It's, it's a it's a men in black moment. We've just you know <laughs> zapped it there. Um, that's fine. We'll move on. <laughs> I, I remember a game against Queen of the South at this. That must have yeah. been the stage before, and we barely got through. I think it was a long throw in or something that, and we scored from it. It was a two-one game. Scottish Cup, Andy Constantine scored last minute. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think we that, that was, yeah, that was, yeah. <laughs> Brutal. Well, let's just skip on past each other. <laughs> As we moved into October, it's a home game against Dundee United and you stab home a rebound from a Rory Fallon header to put Aberdeen one up. Your first goal for Aberdeen. Memories of that one? Yeah, it was in a corner. I think it was a corner. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, I remember that. Great times. <laughs> There's not much to say about it. I was just lurking on the back stick, wasn't I? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. It was just one of them. You just smash it, go through it. Hope for, hope for the best. And then a couple of weeks later, it's the first visit of Rangers to Pataudry. We've spoken with a couple of um, people who have come from maybe out with Aberdeen or out with UK as a whole. Could you sense a real change in the atmosphere around this game from any other you'd played for uh, with Aberdeen? Yeah, yeah, 100%. And there was a lot of talk before the game as well. I was kind of expecting it to to change, and it certainly did. Was that talk from like, the management team or the players in the dressing room? Or? No, you just hear it on the street, like yeah. wherever, whoever you speak to, everyone's like looking forward to it. So there's a lot of excitement around the camp. Can you remember the sending off for Rory Fallon right at the end of the game? Um, he rose for a header with a ranger centre-back whose name escapes us made very little in the way of contact but was shown a, a straight red. I remember, I don't remember the foul, but I remember the red card, yeah. There wasn't really a foul, that might be why. Was it not? <laughs> You're going back uh, 10 yeah. years. Yeah, yeah, we're going to specifics here. We're just, you know, caught up on refereeing injustice right now, what can we say? On that note, did, did Craig Brown or anyone within the club ever like talk to you about having to try and effectively beat the referees? as well as the opposing team when it came to playing Rangers and Celtic? I can't really remember. They might have spoke about they're not being with us, but uh, no, 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 I can't, I can't remember. We'll move it forward. 2nd of January, 
2012. It's a classic New Year's fixture at Tanadice. Um, you're forced to drop into a centre-half partnership with Andy Constant because Yul Mwene uh, gets injured in the in the warm-up. United take an early lead and then Mo Chalali gets a goal via one of your long throws. Um, we'll talk about the long throws in a minute. And then the game drifts towards a 1-1 draw. The ball breaks to you about 40 yards from goal. We'll let you take it up from here. Well, first of all, the, the pitch is on a slope, massive slope. <laughs> yeah. And I think 75% of all goals scored at Tanadice is in, on that goal. I remember Chris Clark passed me the ball and I was pushed up in midfield at this time during the game. And I looked around, but there's nothing really of interest to pass. Like there was no pass that was a forward pass. It was only a sideways pass on and... We needed a win badly, so I just thought, and I was absolutely knackered, so I just leathered it <laughs> and hit it perfectly. It's an absolute beauty of a goal. I think it's probably one of my absolute favourite Aberdeen goals of all time. Yeah, mine, mine too. Can you put into your, into words for us or try and explain the feeling? Because I've never scored a goal like that in front of an away support. Gavin's never scored a goal like that in front of an away support like there was at Tanadice that day. What does that feel like? Just that moment where it hits the hits the bar, down and in, place goes bananas. Yeah, it was unbelievable. I mean, it's what I as a kid, one thing I used to have was an absolute rocket shot. It wasn't very accurate, but I could <laughs> hit it hard as anything. And sounds like Graham left in me still there at that time. And so when I was close to the goal, ball used to fly over the bar a lot. <laughs> <laughs> this was probably my range uh, but uh, yeah I mean it was incredible and uh, towards the end of the game as well you knew that was a winner amazing feeling and as we said the equaliser from Mochalali now that's a name that I'd forgotten about um, also came from one of your infamous long throws um, when did you discover this as a weapon and was it something that you worked on in training with the team to work on moves or was it kind of just a case of Caddy's got a long throw. Let's use that and just see what happens. It was, I was actually playing for Plymouth. I was probably 27 years old and there was a throw in in training. And if I threw it long enough, it would be through on goal kind of thing. I like through. So I just launched it as far as I could and went way over his head and he was through on goal. And actually, he got stopped after. Paul Stark stopped training and said, okay, so you got a long throw, do you? <laughs> and I had no idea, but because uh, I like playing in the middle of the park, you never take throw-ins. I never tried it, so you got used every game after that for Plymouth and and yeah for Aberdeen and Rotherham. You probably could have got yourself a move to Stoke City. I know. Well, with that there, you know, um, the Rory Delap's deputy, maybe there we go. Um, a couple of weeks later, and it's a visit to Ibrox for Aberdeen's. Very last match against uh, that incarnation of Rangers. Andy Constantine misses out. Captain's armband is handed to yourself on a personal level. Again, does that kind of give you, does, does being given the armband, that respect, that belief from the manager, just provide you with a real sense of kind of personal satisfaction? Yeah, it did. I, I, I felt very honoured. It's a massive club. And uh, having only been there for about half a year or so, I was very honoured to take on that role. I knew it wasn't permanent, but happy that he would consider me f for that role. Thought, like He must have thought I was doing something right. 
Absolutely. And, and for people who won't remember, uh, Aberdeen travelled to Ibrox that day with an injury list. I was going to say as long as my arm, but my arm's not very long, but it was a long list of, of people who were out injured that day. And it's a bit of a backs to the walls effort in the first 45 minutes, although yourself and Fraser Fivey were, were, were doing really well in the centre of the park. In the second half, confidence kind of begins to grow. We begin to take, well, we begin to create some chances. Rory McArdle has a header cleared off the line before we take the lead on 63 minutes. Uh, a great break by the aforementioned Chris Clark. Sees him knock the ball back to yourself. A neat little step inside before a, a lovely curled finish into the bottom corner of the net. Again, just your recollections on that one, if you can. That was like my confidence was flying at the time, and and I'm not like a, a big goal scorer, and I, I I very rarely get chances like that in, inside the box to take someone on in in the box and and slot it. But uh, yeah, it was a break, and I just went for it, and and Clarky had a, a good thing going. I remember I was used to like playing with Clarky. He used to give me the ball a lot at, at Plymouth. And he found me, and and yeah, he found me in the in the space, and I had to take him on, the centre back, and yeah, one of my better goals, I would say, technically, yeah, very good. Henri esque, <laughs> bent into the bottom corner. I wouldn't go that far. But... <laughs> <laughs> it's a little, it's a little bit different from the absolute thunder bastard yeah, of Canada, yeah. but. Still, equally lovely stuff. Yeah, I was, uh, being a centre back, I was I was happy with the footwork there. Very happy. So you should be. So you should be. Unfortunately, Rangers equalised a few minutes later, but the Dons hold out for a one-one draw. Which, given the circumstances, guys mentioned the injuries playing away to Rangers. Any game is hard. It's a decent point, all things considered. You made mention this earlier that there were so you had six months left on your deal, having only signed a one-year deal. Negotiations did take place, but they, as you say, they they broke down. Were you keen to stay at Aberdeen, or had you kind of made up your mind that maybe one year Aberdeen and then go pursue another challenge elsewhere? Well, like everyone knows, uh, you're always trying to go for the larger wages. Let's just tell it like it is. Mm-hmm. And Aberdeen weren't really forking out massive wages at the time. And uh, I'd taken a pay cut to to come to Aberdeen in the first place. So I was looking to bounce back onto what I had or more, especially after that very good six months I had. So I was happy to stay, but they would have to pay for it, so to speak. And they they, they just, I mean, and I understand that completely. They they just had a a budget they were following and, and they couldn't offer me what I wanted at the time. And I thought I could get more elsewhere. So, yeah, it, it kind of broke down, but there was kind of no recovering from it. It was like, all right, then it's off the table kind of thing, which was all right, okay, if, if that's the way it is, it, that's the way it is. But then nothing was happening, and uh, it kind of played on my mind without me knowing it. It, it wasn't bothering me. It was frustrating, but I, I tried to leave it outside football, but... In hindsight, it definitely affected my performances after that. Yeah, well, thank you for your honesty there. I mean, it's maybe something that supporters don't recognize that at the end of the day, you know, it's it's your it's your livelihood as much as anything else. And you've got to go and where a contract will be secure for you and secure your future. We touched on Fraser Five just a little bit there. Um, a very, very young player that came into the team and made a big impression. 
What were your thoughts about Fraser as a player as he was making his way in the game? He was a man very young. He was very talented for a player, but I think it's unfortunate how it developed his career, really. He went early to Wigan, didn't he? And yeah. And he kind of panned out. Like, it uh, didn't pan out, I mean, and, and it kind of, not much happened. It was, like, kind of sad how it turned out because he had the talent, but I don't know. There was, there was something missing, but I, I can't put my finger on Maybe it was a turn of pace or, or being a winger because maybe his strong, strongest position was central midfield. I don't know. From what I recall, Craig Brown had a thing for playing him on the wide right, which I don't think really yeah. benefited him. Yeah. Um, and obviously, he suffered that really bad injury. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was unlucky with injuries. But like when you when you don't have the height, sometimes you get stuck out wide, especially when you're a technical player. And yeah. uh, I think that that might be like what happened to him. He, he got stuck out wide because he was technical and he he didn't have the graft to be in midfield, but. That's England for you or, or UK for you. While we're just talking about <clears throat> playing at Ibrox, I remember that after you left Aberdeen the first time around, that you, you, you commented about feeling really frustrated about our attire that we would wear to arrive at both Ibrox and Celtic Park. Just talk to us a little bit about that, because this is one of my big bugbears as well, I'll be quite honest. Yeah, I mean, I felt like... What are we doing here? For a normal game, we travel in a tracksuit, we arrive at the stadium in a tracksuit, and then when we play these two teams, all of a sudden we're suited and booted. What are just going to give them the game as well? Like, why are you showing them all? I know they're the biggest clubs, but there's no reason to show them all that respect. And I, I never got that. I didn't understand that. It just, yeah, I, I couldn't cope with that. Not something you've encountered anywhere else in your career? No. Yeah, I, I imagine that would be the case. I mean, it's like the yeah in the Premier League when they go to Liverpool and Man U, they wear a suit, but when they play Watford, it's it's a tracky. Yeah, it, it, it's one of my real real bugbears about Scottish football generally. Because I think it's not just Aberdeen that do this. You see it across across yeah. across all clubs. That and like participating in some of the weird like some of the weird formalities that especially the Rangers board get like our board of directors to get involved in as well, like pre-match and all that kind of stuff, you know. Ah, uh, right. So it comes from the board. I thought it was just like the managerial stuff or someone. I, I'm not sure, but like, you know, the, you'll always see this footage of like the, the, the directors and stuff going up to the, their director's area. And that's fine. I'm having a beer with it, but there's these little weird traditions that they all get involved in. And I'm like, this is just a bit, it's far too deferential for me. But there, there we go. I was just interested to see. Oh, that's that's the soundbite that's getting taken out of yes. this episode. <laughs> um, the uh, the Dons League campaign it pretty much just peters out into kind of a pretty nothing season, but the Scottish Cup provides the bright spot. Um, so you made mention there it's a last minute winner at Queen of the South via Andy Considine, legend, sparking wild scenes in the away end. Before it's a fine two one victory at Fir Park um, at Motherwell against Motherwell. I remember it well, Rory Fallon scored two absolute beauties and Aberdeen booked their place in the semi-final speaking of that semi-final itself what were your impressions of playing at Hampden? Unbelievable stadium unfortunately it has a running track around it yeah shite isn't it? But unbelievable stadium why is that running track there? Who knows <laughs> if you want the long story it's because basically the old stadium used to be much closer and it was that bowl shape and when they redeveloped it to put the seats in they decided to keep the bowl shape, but rather than 
actually spend any money to bring the foundations in closer and bring the pit, uh, bring the stands in closer. They just kept on the same footprint. They basically just bolted seats onto the old terracing. Wow, right. And then they were like, oh, there's this huge area here and we'll just leave it like that now. And it's so frustrating because, again, you know, if you... That's if you look one at- of the better home pitches in Europe. There's a running track around uh, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, you look at the atmosphere that there's been at Hamden for recent games for Scotland, um, you know, against Denmark recently and against um, Israel a, few, a couple of weeks ago. It's one of those things that I'm like, see if you built that stadium properly and had that right on top of, get rid of the running track, have that right on top of the pitch. What an atmosphere you could get with that place. But yeah, digressing again on you, Gav. Well, I mean, anything to delay talking about the actual semi-final itself. Aberdeen, we couldn't get off to a worse start if we tried. It's a pretty bad goal conceded to Gary O'Connor after just three minutes. What's going through your mind as a player when you lose that sort of goal so early in a cup semi-final, knowing how massive a game it is? Yeah, I've, I've blocked that out of my memory as well. Uh, that's the best way, just to block out the bad and keep the good. Yeah, I mean, it's devastating to concede that early. It's, it's, you're fighting uphill for the rest of the game, really. Until you get the equaliser. Well, talk about an equaliser. Um, it's a, it's a poor first forty five minutes, but it's all forgotten about when Rory Fallon smashes in an absolute worldie. Fifty minutes into the second half, I remember it very well. We were, if you watch the game on YouTube or like the highlights, we're in like the top left corner, and I remember like when Fallon hits the ball first, I was quite convinced this ball is going to go out of Hamden, and then it just yeah. dips really savagely, and it's it's probably still to this day the best goal I've seen live and in person certainly from an Aberdeen player at that point you score a goal like that you must think you know it's written in the stars we're going to go on and win this game normally that gets you going and yeah that's what you're thinking and I seem to, I seem to recall Craig Brown made a strange substitution I think he brought I think he brought Fraser Fivey on for Chris Clark who was getting a lot of joy down the wings and getting balls into Vernon and Fallon and then Fivey came on and it just kind of took away all our width okay yeah I, I i can't really remember the the details of it yeah i can't quite might be getting the exact specifics wrong but there was a strange substitution that i thought just took away our momentum but i remember there was some shambolic defending in the in the goal they got yeah i can remember it was on our right side but i i can't remember what actually happened but it was a shambles yeah i mean we touched on it it's, it's not to be it's a weak weak Lee Griffith shot as well that beats Jason Brown at his near post there's about 10 minutes to go at that point um, Jason Brown was in goal yeah alright okay I feel there's a story there no 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 I didn't remember him playing like that late in the season that's all I think this might have been his last game for Aberdeen I think I can't remember for definite I remember the first goal was a very odd goal to concede as well from a, a goalkeeper's perspective the the second one is not it's not a particularly well hit shot by Griffiths and it kind of sneaks in at the near post. I mean that's the season finished at that point because the league campaign is 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 kind of ending in a, a pretty average fashion. What were the kind of can you remember and you maybe this you've maybe said about as well about blocking out the kind of bad stuff recollections about the kind of like atmosphere in the dressing room after that game, just one of absolute disappointment gutted. It was yeah, it was everyone's gutted. It was one of them the the seasons like turning out to be nothing really we got an away game at some uh, yeah some astroturf pitch uh, left and it was yeah it was yeah it wasn't good 
And, and as we just said, the league campaign then it finishes up Aberdeen in ninth place for the second season in a row. And your last game of your first spell at Aberdeen is a nil-nil draw at home to St Mirren. You end that season with 38 appearances across all competitions, scoring three goals. Can you remember just at the time what were your kind of thoughts about leaving Aberdeen? It was disappointment, really, to uh, not have done better, first of all, and then my season turning out the way it did. I mean, it was probably 20-odd very good performances, but 10 poor ones, to say the least, ones that I wasn't happy with. So it was, yeah, it was one of them. Did you ever think he'd be back? No, I didn't envision it, especially with the season ending like it did. We've read somewhere that you were very good friends with Rory Fallon, having played with him at Plymouth and then at Aberdeen, and so much so that you end up playing drums in a band with him. Yeah, correct. Lovely stuff, lovely stuff. We used to play, I think it was every Wednesday, we used to go out, he used to have a house middle of nowhere, like probably where the Trump course is now, like out in the dunes somewhere. And there was nothing around. And uh, I used to drive there, I bought like a second-hand kit for about 100 quid and just put it in his living room. And we used to like play every Wednesday evening. And uh, Carly, his wife, used to cook us uh, a lovely meal. So great times. Then my groin started to go from the kick drum, so <laughs> we had to rest. rest. <laughs> Got to know, what was your band called? We weren't called anything. We were just, he was unbelievable. He used to write these songs, like, all the time. Just sit in his house and write songs, both lyrics and on the guitar. And I, I would just, like, drum along it. And then, yeah. <laughs> Good stuff, good stuff. Um, any other players from that kind of time that you kept in contact with uh, from your spell at Aberdeen? Uh, not really. I can't say that I did. I mean, Clarkie for a little bit. No, not really, no. And then uh, Rob Milton came to Rotherham, actually. That's right, yeah. But that's football for you. You, you. you go somewhere for one, two, three years and you make friends, especially in the later stages of my career. I didn't make many at the start, but... Uh, <laughs> Towards the end, I started to actually make friends, uh, which my mother will be happy with. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, you move on, and like I have about four people that I speak to on a regular basis, and they all come from either Aberdeen, Rory, or because we played together for a long time. We were together at Plymouth, then uh, then uh, Aberdeen. But then at Rotherham, I stayed for three years, quite successful years. So uh, there was friend, like real friendships that were made there. Yeah, good stuff. And well, let's go. To, let's move to Rotherham now. So you moved there. Um, I believe they were League Two at the time, but big plans, new stadium, a lot of aspirations to rise through the leagues. And you helped them to back-to-back promotions to get into the championship. And in this time, you transition more into a centre half. And then in 2015... You make the move to Sweden, joining Malmo, um, where you make an instant impact. Malmo knock out Celtic in the Champions League qualifiers. Go on, Malmo. Uh, to reach the group stages, uh, where you land up in a group alongside Real Madrid, PSG, and Shakhtar Donetsk. And you captain Malmo at the Santiago Bernabeu. Don't, don't go there, please. Because <laughs> we lost about 8-0 or something. 8-0. <laughs> we'll cut this part out. You just, we just need to know you captained them at the Bernabeu. 
given that you'd been in League Two with Rotherham, you know, just a matter a few seasons before, do you have to sort of like stop and pinch yourself, you know, to realize and kind of believe that you're now playing Champions League group football? I always like believed in my own ability and probably thought I was better than I than I was. But uh, I think when I play for like Iceland against really good teams, I can hire my performances. I, I could be retired and all. Uh, I could lift my performances in individual games. I couldn't keep that level consistently. And that's why I probably never played at a higher level. But when it came to national team games, I could lift it for like one, two games, fully focused. But I don't know if it was complacency or what it was, but uh, like I, I, I couldn't keep that level up. Like my highest level was quite high, but my lowest level was too low, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it reminds me of me playing golf. Whenever I play golf with like much, much better players, I play better. Yeah. When I play with guys at my at my level, it's you know horrendous all the time. So there we go. The following season, Malmo kind of returned to winning ways. You end up leading the team as captain for the closing stages of the league campaign as Malmo win the title, finishing up six points clear of AIK. But then I guess more importantly as well for you, during this period, Iceland secure qualification to Euro 2016, their first appearance at a major tournament. Just talk us through, I guess, the emotions, the excitement amongst yourself, your teammates when you finally secured that spot at, at, at Euro 2016? At that time, that was by far the biggest achievement Icelandic sport had ever risen to. Uh, it was unbelievable. Uh, everyone was ec- ecstatic. I mean, we had a very strong team. It wasn't anything fancy, but everyone knew their role and we had quality up front uh, and in various positions, really. And it was, everyone knew their role. We were all like pushing in the same, I've never felt anything like this, like how everyone was pushing in the same direction, no exceptions. But it was maybe a 13 man effort. That was the problem. As soon as one or two were injured, we had problems, big problems. Uh, But uh, I mean, and, and the camaraderie in that, like going through that with your, with guys from the same country that's been terrible for a number of years yes nothing beats it It was unbelievable and as a mainstay of that side you're in the squad that goes to the tournament and you start well you man mark a certain cristiano ronaldo out of the game as iceland secure a 1-1 draw against portugal and that's followed up by another 1-1 draw with hungary meaning that you go into the final group game against Austria, knowing that a win will likely be enough to take you into the into the knockout rounds. Was there a sense of nerves in the cap or did you go into that game with real, real confidence? Everyone's absolutely, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on it, but everyone's shitting themselves because it's only nerves, really. Like, they get you going, but with those nerves comes focus and that that was the whole idea behind our team everyone was fully focused and uh, but we we have the whole nation there and when you look up on the in the stand you know like every other face it's like either your friend your family or someone you you actually know by name so you you don't want to be the guy who lets uh, a whole nation down let alone your team so it, yeah, it, 
the games weren't really pleasant. You you just like getting through them the best you can. And the way like we didn't play the best football we played in that tournament, but it was result driven to the maximum. Iceland beat Austria two one. You yourself with the assist for the opener and you're named man of the match. And this sets up an infamous last thirty-two tie against England in Nice. Talk us through the mood in the squad going into that game against England. You know, it's on paper, it's you know, it's no contest effectively. England should be winning this game all day. Did you take the view that you had nothing to lose and all the pressure was in fact on England? And that's maybe a contributing factor in uh, in how things played out. It was I remember looking at Joey Goodmanson at Burnley at the time, uh, or who's at Burnley now? At the time, uh, we looked at each other in the eye, like as if we just made it to the to the qualifying. What is going on here? And we're playing England of all teams, and yeah, it was just it was surreal. And with how the Austria game played out, we were under pressure for the last forty-five minutes. They were playing in our box. It was the toughest game I've ever played. It was absolutely roasting. And we were just all knackered. It was like pure joy after the game. But then, yeah, as you say, we we, we find out we're playing England. And uh, it, it's it's one of them. It's We're not preparing. We're just laughing, really. But uh, eventually, uh, eventually we, we start to focus on the game and... and, and Last lie back, the manager starts speaking about it and he goes, listen, boys, we're playing against the most overrated team in Europe now. And so he kind of built belief in the squad and he, he picked out flaws and weaknesses in their game like I've never seen before. It was so thorough and, uh, yeah, the analysis was impeccable and we knew exactly what to do, what their weaknesses were. And what would happen if if something went against them? So we were very well organised and and ready for that game when it came. And the Icelandic population grows by about five million, I think. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And uh, that matter of weaknesses, someone obviously picked up on, hit the ball low to Joe Hart's left. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the most remarkable games of football that we've watched. You know, Iceland completely deserving of that 2-1 victory that uh, that took place and you yourself you're, you assist the equalising goal I think I probably know the answer to this already but where does that match rank in your career? That's a top one I mean the Austria game probably because my performance was was the best probably of the tournament but uh, as a whole like the England game sticks out 100% The dream comes to an end at a 5-2 defeat to host France in the quarterfinals but Iceland had absolutely well and truly made their mark on the international scene in that tournament. And in January 2017, you then make the move from Mamo to uh, AC Omnia in, in Cyprus for a six-month spell before winging your way back to Aberdeen in July of that year, becoming Derek McInnes' sixth summer signing that year. How did the return move to Aberdeen come about and did you need much convincing to make a return? The thing was, uh, I was in Ammonia in Cyprus. The football there, they they pay well and it, it's a nice lifestyle, but the football there isn't the best. It's it's slow and uh, 
quite frustrating at times. But I mean, they have some very fine footballers, like Brazilians and from all over the world that come there and, and play. But football itself is slow and it's like it's warm. So it's like walking football kind of procession based. We were fighting to to uh, get qualified for the World Cup at the time. And I felt that I had to be in a better league to keep my place within the, within the Iceland squad and, and play every game for them. As I'm thinking this, I get a strange call that say that Aberdeen are interested to get me. And as soon as I hear that, I start pushing to get released from Ammonia. Yeah, to to go cheapest chips at least, and then uh, yeah, I I leave some wages there, and I I take a big pay cut and and, and go to uh, Aberdeen. It was one of those. It seemed like there was talk about it all summer. The uh, I remember the the video that was released on Twitter with the uh, the commentary from the Dundee United goal. Aberdeen are a very different club compared to the one that you signed for first time round. You know, we'd enjoyed some real progress under Derek McInnes. Um, you know, we had a trophy in the cabinet the season before we'd finished runners-up to Celtic in all three competitions, including that uh, heartbreaking last-minute defeat in the Scottish Cup final, which we don't need to talk about. Did you notice a difference in the overall atmosphere around the club compared to your first spell? Yeah, I mean, it was a better team. <laughs> that was basically it. It was a, a, a lot better team. And... I wish the team was like that when I came the first time around because when I came, I also found that the game passed me by. It was a long time since I played in in the UK and the tempo was still the same and uh, even more physical, if, if anything. And I was about 36 at the time and I, I just felt like I'm not out of my depth, but this doesn't suit me anymore. Kind of the football, like I, it, I'm too old for this shit, basically, <laughs> basically, <laughs> because yeah, it's it's different. I mean, I'm not saying it's better or worse. It's just very, very different from mainland Europe football. Yeah, it's more tactical and it's possession based, and and I like develop my football towards that because I was moving into that, and then to make the leap back, it, it yeah, it wasn't a great fit. We'll talk about your overall reflections on on making the return in a moment. But um, going back to you sign and when you signed, it was a summer of a big turnover of players. You know, Aberdeen had lost Johnny Hayes, Nell McGinn, alongside Ash Taylor and Ryan Jack. When Derek McInnes spoke to you, was the initial was the general idea that you were going to be coming in as a centre back rather than a centre midfielder? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Always a centre back. Uh... I, I hadn't played, I, I never played a centre midfield for Malmo or any other clubs after I left the UK. It was just, yeah. I, I slotted in that centre midfield for Rotherham uh, when we had injuries. But yeah, I, I, I was just mainly centre back. And obviously playing for Iceland, I never played anything but centre back. Uh, so yeah, yeah. But what it was kind of, he was expecting me to become the next Russell Anderson, I, I suppose. But I'm not the same personality is him and, and it's hard to come in and with the same authority as, as Russell has so it, it was I, I, I said I'd do my best but I, I can't change the, who I am really to to fit into your mould How did you find the dressing room? 
on your return. Because, um, again, it's, it's a completely different squad. It's a completely different set of guys. There was certainly more quality in the side compared to your first stint. But it always seemed as well that there was a good team spirit and a good environment. Yeah, yeah no, it was. It was. It was a. It was a very. I enjoyed my time there. It was a like great bunch of lads and no complaints really. Uh, I enjoyed my time better the first time around, probably because I played a bigger part in it. But uh, I got more involved in it. But uh, it was a. It was a very nice group of lads and no, no complaints really. And a second debut for Aberdeen comes a couple of weeks after you, you join again. Uh, you come off the bench for uh, Gary McKay-Steven, I think, as I recall, in the Europa League, uh, a tie against Apple on Limassol at Pataudry. And it's uh, a raucous atmosphere at, at the stadium, um, which then erupted when Graham Shinney's long-range effort found the back of the net. Would that be up there, do you think, for the kind of best atmosphere you played in at, at Pataudry? Yeah, 100%. I mean, but the the Rangers games were always special. And so then a first start followed up in the league's opening day, victory over Hamilton before you kind of dropped back on the bench for the next few weeks. As Aberdeen started the domestic campaign well, you know, winning the opening five fixtures in league and league cup before a 0-0 draw at Tynecastle, and then you're brought back into the starting lineup for a 0-0 draw with Kilmarnock. Before then dropping back out of the side for a trip to Motherwell in the league cup quarterfinal a pretty horrendous game. I remember it very well watching it at home. Final defeat, pretty much as bad as it could have been for Aberdeen. You came off the bench for the last 40 minutes of the game, and, but you know, it was gone within 20 minutes. But we played Motherwell just three days later and you're reinstated and you're placed alongside a very young Scott McKenna who kind of just kind of came in out of nowhere for the start. And Andy Constantine goal sees the Dons take all three points, but you and your yourself and McKenna perform very well in the heart of defence. What were your initial impressions of Scott McKenna? And did you get the feeling that he was going to go on and you know get that big money transfer to the championship as he has? Honestly, when I first saw Scott in training, I thought, how is this boy not playing? How is he not playing? Because he's absolutely rapid, so strong, and actually a very good footballer. And I thought, it's remarkable that he's not playing. So I was very happy that he put us two together. And if anything good, like, uh, anything good came from my, uh, from my time at Aberdeen for the second time, uh, hopefully it was, I helped him along, along his way in some, some respect. Was that you mentioned there that Derek McInnes saw you as perhaps coming in as being a Russell Anderson type figure? Did Derek McInnes like place upon you the kind of role of managing and mentoring Scott McKenna through those first games? You know, him coming in as a young guy. No, but like you're happy to do that when when you have a young kid. And uh, I can't remember if he he said something to me, but uh, obviously you try if he's, he was twenty years old, you you try to help him the best you can when you're playing alongside him. It's good for him and it's good for you so it's it's a it's a win-win but uh yeah but he was a humble and and good boy and 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 so talented that you were happy to help him but he didn't need much help to be honest and that game then sees you and scott mckenna form a a center half partnership that would be used for the next set of fixtures which included an away fixture at hamilton where you scored the first goal of your second spell it's actually in your 50th appearance for Aberdeen as well. So a nice little milestone to get a goal in. And then a 2-0 home defeat to Motherwell saw you drop back out of the starting lineup before you're kind of in and back out again during a doubleheader against Rangers 
which Solid Dawn suffered two defeats. Is there was a lot of uncertainty at that time around the future of the management team. Um, can you explain just like what, what what are the kind of feelings in a squad of players like when there's such heavy rumours going around about the manager he may be leaving to go to another club, um, especially one of your main rivals as well, and especially as well when it drags out over such a long period of time as it did at that point. I mean, it's very strange. When you leave, you, you don't follow very closely. You keep an eye out for the teams you played. And, and I always did that with Aberdeen. And I saw that he, he'd done an amazing job for Aberdeen there. So I never understood. And, and he got some criticism, I suppose, probably more style of play than anything. Because he, he was actually challenging. Challenging the, the Celtic Rangers. So... Like, you can't take anything away from his time at Aberdeen. He did really, really well. But that I found a very strange, because everyone knew he was down south having talks with the Rangers. Um, and then all of a sudden, uh, like, the, the players that didn't have a good relationship were all, yeah, okay, <laughs> this could be my chance. Uh, and, and then all of a sudden they turn up, like, a week later, all right, uh, we're back. And you go on. What the fuck just happened here? Because I'm, I'm right in thinking, I'm at night. This was rumoured at the time, but I don't think it was ever made official. Did Paul Sheeran and Barry Robson have to take training for the best yeah. part of a week? Yeah. So it was just a, like, a, like I never experienced anything like it, but okay, on we go. Yeah, because you would normally expect it's just a, like, that's it, done, or they're not going, that's it. For it to drag out for so long is, is, is very odd. After it's announced that, that, that Derek and Tony Doherty are staying, um, Aberdeen go on a, a decent run of form, uh, only one defeat in six as the league then headed into the winter break. Um, included in that run was a lovely header from yours truly at St Johnston in a 3-0 victory. But again, you're kind of in and out of the side a little bit. Um, that continued after the winter break, being in and out of the team. And, and from January through to March, it kind of appeared from the outside, I guess, that you'd fallen out of favour, I guess, with management. Was there any particular reason for that? I think we just didn't see eye to eye. I I consider him a very good manager. He's a very good motivator, a very good speaker. But I didn't agree with the way we played. And I, I mentioned that to him. And I, I think he wasn't happy with me uh, inflicting my opinions on what he was doing because he, he'd been quite successful at doing what he was doing. But I thought we had such a strong team. Now we should actually be playing football here. We have Kenny McLean and Graham Shinney in the middle. Very, very good footballers, especially Kenny McLean. I mean, he was like a standout. He was probably the best midfielder in the league at this time, or up there at least. And I thought, like, why aren't we giving him the ball? Why is he watching the ball going over his head and then trying to scrap for second balls to try to make something happen? Can we not find a way that we keep the ball a little bit better and take the sting out of the game? We're actually making a 50-50 game by launching in and centre-backs just win your headers and all this. Like, So, yeah. Oh. But do you think that's why you were out of the team of it is because you'd voiced that? No, obviously it was performing. If I, if I was uh, performing well at the same time, I, I'm probably playing. So I can't blame it on that. But like I said, it, it, it wasn't a good fit to come into... British football back when you're 36. So, but yeah, it it was one of them. It, it, it was just uh, I was I was kind of over that style of football, and and uh, I wasn't trying to change the team to suit me or anything. I was just I thought this could actually benefit the team if we, if we start playing a little bit. 
you know, the, the theme kind of carries on. You're back in the team for an away fixture with Motherwell. You get yourself an opening goal, uh, great header. Uh, but then you're back on the bench for the next fixture at Hearts. Clearly, this would be a, a frustration. And especially as you made mention to your whole motivation for coming back to Aberdeen was to really put your name front and center for Iceland, who are, you know, got one eye on the World Cup in 2018. So like, how concerning was it for you that you're kind of a bit part player at Aberdeen, knowing that this motivation is is there and it's 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 looming large? Yeah, I mean, it was. I was very concerned. But uh, I was performing with Iceland any time I, I went away. So I knew as long as I'm performing here and we're winning games and Iceland at this time were playing their best football uh, in the world. We actually won the World Cup qualifying group. Very tough group. Turkey, Ukraine, uh, Croatia. And we won that group. So we were playing very good football and I was putting a shift in very good performances. So that kept me going. I, I knew I, I would keep my place due to what I've done in the qualifiers. Uh, and so the other thing kind of faded out. I was very frustrated at the start, but uh, it was... And it's you want, you want consistency when you're playing a centre-back. You want uh, to play as many games as possible without overdoing it, being 36 at the time. And it's taken a lot out of you, especially the way it was played, the game. Uh, so it was towards the end, it was like, all right, yeah, let's just get this over with. Yeah, I mean, it certainly felt like from outside looking in that one of Iceland's strengths or what their success was built on was a very tight-knit group of players. And the manager obviously had a lot of faith in you, kind of regardless of what you were doing in, in club football. Going back to Aberdeen, um, the Scottish Cup semi-final against Motherwell at Hamden. Another semi-final, another cup, cup game with Motherwell. Um, suspensions and injuries kind of decimate the, the heart of the Aberdeen team. Graham Shinney, Kenny McLean and Shea Logan are all missing out. We're forced to play with Dom Ball at right back and Chidi and Quali uh, returning to the starting lineup for the first time in a few weeks. Uh, it's a fairly open, even opening period, but the game falls apart for Aberdeen very quickly. Curtis Main taps in after what appeared to be a handball by Richard Tate in the build-up. And then a couple of minutes later, they get their second goal from Bowman. And then Motherwell complete the job on about an hour mark. Curtis Main with the third goal. Um, care, to, care to tell us about your memories of this game? Yeah, I, you tend to remember your mistakes. And I was 100% at fault. Me and Andy, Big Andy, were some miscommunication there or whatever. Uh, but I, I take the blame for that third goal. And that's what I took from that. But at the time, it, was, it wasn't much confidence going on. And in my play, being in and out of the team all the time and, and, and it just it shone through on that day. It wasn't not a game Aberdeen as a whole or, or myself were proud of. So Gary and I were there in the stand. Um, it was one of the first games under McInnes where I remember a sort of an element of a toxic atmosphere in the in the Aberdeen end and certainly a feeling of disgruntlement with how things were going, largely because maybe a feeling of underperforming in the Cups and, as you said, the playing style not being hugely enjoyable to watch. What was the manager's reaction like at halftime and after the game? Absolutely raging, but uh, yeah, 
Not good. Uh, I'm not going to go into details, but yeah, yeah, a bit of a telling off. We can cut this out if you want, but I'm going to ask it because I'm very intrigued by this. Chidi and Quali, what was everyone's thoughts when he turned up after being signed? Because if I'm honest, that was a guy that to a lot of supporters were like, what? I, I don't understand why we signed this guy. Yeah, it was uh, it was weird. It was, it was strange, but uh, to be honest, some of the stuff he showed in training was unbelievable. Oh, really? Yeah? Yeah. He turned up at training sometimes and it was incredible. But then in games, you, you couldn't really see it, but there was definitely something there and must have... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's again, you, you bring someone like that into Scottish football and sometimes they look like a rabbit in headlights but uh, because they don't know what hit them because it's just over their heads and you're scrapping. And I, I think it just didn't suit him. Like, style of play didn't suit him rather than him not being a good footballer. Yeah, because I guess he was, he was in the Man City Academy and everything, wasn't he? And I wonder if it's just one of these scenarios. And you see it at the moment with guys like Matty Longstaff at Aberdeen who they come through the English academies. They're probably very good on a technical level and they can do all sorts of stuff in a non-game scenario. But then as soon as the hustle and bustle and the 100 miles an hour and folk are firing into tackles and everything on you, it just becomes like, like you just say, a bit rabbit and headlights sort or of stuff. But that's that's interesting to hear that insight that, you know, there was something there. Yeah, 100%. Because I think for a lot of Aberdeen fans, we'd go, I never saw any of that. But that's cool. Thank you. Appreciate that. Ultimately, that that game um, at Hamden ends up being your last start for Aberdeen. There's a, a short six-minute cameo um, away at Kilmarnock the following week, which was your last appearance. I, I remember in the, in, the, in the week after that cup semi-final that there were some comments by the manager. I don't think they were directed necessarily at particular players, but... Did you feel that you were kind of being scapegoated for that defeat at Hamden by the manager? Yeah, I, I knew that I, I wouldn't play for Aberdeen again uh, after that. Uh, it wasn't particularly good performance, but the, our relationship was never good and it was not easy for him. But like I knew it, I would get the blame for that and that's completely fine. It was nothing. So all in all, I mean, it's, it's a pretty disappointing, I'm sure, for yourself. It's a disappointing way for your time at Aberdeen to come to an end. Again, this question is here. I already know the answer, but was there any discussion about a contract extension? No. Would you have been interested in a contract extension? To play for Aberdeen, but <laughs> it's, it's a difficult one. Uh, no, uh, no, no, I wouldn't. Because, like I said, style of play wasn't great and... Yeah, no, I I couldn't see myself do another season under under. Yeah, yeah, maybe just the league itself wasn't for you either. No, no. So all in all, your Aberdeen career sees you make sixty five appearances, scoring six goals over two spells. You do make the Iceland squad for the twenty eighteen World Cup final in Russia, starting the opening two group fixtures, including a memorable one one draw against an Argentina side. This time. You've got so you've got Ronaldo and Messi in the back pocket. Yeah, not bad. No, not bad for a thirty-seven-year-old at the time. I suppose. <laughs> I think they're both just sitting on your mantelpiece behind you, aren't they? <laughs> Talk to us about the experience of playing in a World Cup final in Russia, representing your country in that uh, on that stage. It was unbelievable. I actually thought the Euros felt bigger. The the security and everything. 
in Russia was so heavy that you never really saw anything. But in France, we stayed in a lovely little village called Annecy, and you actually felt the support from uh, people of that little town. And they used to come to training and watch through the fence, and it was everything was so positive, and you, you actually felt it. But in Russia, it was it was different. But uh, at the same st- same time, it was a World Cup, and and it was yeah unbelievable, especially that first game against against Argentina. Yeah, packed stadium. Yeah, Messi, Aguero, Di Maria, everyone was there. <laughs> it was something else. This may come as a shock, but I've never come across anyone like Lionel Messi playing at goals on a Monday night. So, no, probably not. Can you uh, give us even the tiniest insight what it's like playing on the same pitch as that man? Yeah, I mean, we uh, we did a lot of scouting and, and a lot of reports on him. And we actually figured it out. <laughs> no, no, but uh, we had uh, certain rules when approaching him. And they were quite simple, but they actually worked. And they showed clips from the Spanish league and where everyone's ever, every time they're around him, they try to get the ball off him. So they go for the ball, but that's when he makes his move. And it's like he sees you in slow motion and just skips past you. Just don't try to get the ball off him. Wait till in, until he tries to do something or he will pass the ball. And that's what happened the whole game. No one actually engaged him unless they had to and just waited for him, just backed off him. And it gave us time to double him up. And then he would bump the ball off to someone else. Or he would go try to dribble and two very passive defenders against one and usually took a ball off him. Oh, well, if there's any coaches from Ligue 1 listening, there you go. Have that advice for free. Um, so after the World Cup, you make the move to Turkish side and Gary's really stitched me up here. Gen- uh, Gensler Berligi. Gensler Berligi. Gensler Berligi. There we go. Got that for a season before then returning to Iceland and your first club, Vikinger, where you finish up your career at the end of the 2021 season. Just a matter of months, uh, a couple months ago, helping Vikinger to a league and cup double, winning the league by one point from Aberdeen's Europa Conference League opponents, Bright of League. You've retired from the game with a record of winning two Swedish league titles, a Swedish cup, one Icelandic league title, two Icelandic Cups, a League One playoff final winner at Wembley, and a total of 90 caps for Iceland with six goals, which places you sixth on the all-time appearance record for Iceland. How does that feel when, you know, I rattle that off for you? Yeah, I haven't heard that put in context. Yeah, I'm quite happy with that. So you should be. What does the future hold now for, for Caddy Arneson? Well, I've, I've taken over as director of football for my club back home. Uh, I've been doing that for about three weeks now and uh, signed uh, three players already. And we're trying to push on and trying to, uh, yeah, trying to uh, push the whole club on, the youth setup. I'm, I'm trying to reorganize that and, and put a policy in place so... so Nothing changes, although personnel change. So we're, we're, we're working in a certain direction and, and 
establish some continuity with this club that I hold very dearly and I, I grew up with. And then on the side, I'm, I'm, it's a full-time job, but uh, I'm actually doing um, property development as well with uh, a business associate and, and, I, uh, and a friend that I, I went to America with. That's the, the, the main things I'm, I'm doing and, and, try, and expecting my second child as well. A little boy coming in March. Yeah, so hands full. Well, congratulations to the Arneson family. Um, you'll have your hands full with a second one. I can vouch for that one. Not expecting anything else. <laughs> yeah, and we, uh, we wish you all the best with your, uh, both your work as a director of football and your work outside football as well. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. So listen, Carrie, it's been an absolute pleasure um, talking with you. We've taken up way, way more of your time than we deserve. Um, we're really delighted to get an opportunity to talk to you here on, on, on our podcast. We'll wrap things up here. We've got one last question, and, and this is one question that we ask every single one of our guests. Um, it's, I, I, I was going to say it's quite a straightforward one, but then some of the answers we've had have been far from straightforward. What does Aberdeen Football Club mean to you? It's probably the the club I played for uh, in my professional career that I hold most sentiment to, and the fact that my son was born there, it it and it's his first kit. It's yes. uh, it's a it's a very special special club in my heart, and I I wish I I did better for the second time around, but as I said game kind of passed me by there but uh yeah so so that's my only regret in terms of Aberdeen but love the club and I I hope to to visit sometime soon top man Kyle Arneson it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on board thanks very much again stand free thank you and that wraps up this week's episode of the ABZ football podcast thanks for joining us and please remember to like subscribe follow whatever on your podcast player of choice join us next week for episode 24 where we'll review our doubleheader against Hibs and Dundee in the SPFL Premiership before we look ahead to the visit of new co-rangers to Batodre and our trip to Dingwall before the winter break kicks in. We'll have our usual look at our loanies and loan watch, and that'll probably be about it, I reckon, for us that week, given it's Christmas and all. I'd like to wish you all, all of our listeners, all of our followers on Twitter, a very, very Merry Christmas. We'll see you on the 29th of December. We'll look forward to seeing you then. Stand free. This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast was brought to you by Anderson Quantity Surveying. AQS's exceptional contractor tendering and comparison service provides you with a professional tendering documentation for your contractors to quote against, allowing you to have a fully transparent and like-for-like tendering process, saving you money in the long run, avoiding hidden and unexpected costs at a later date, and ensuring you select the most appropriate contractor for your project. To find out more, give AQS a call on 01224 502 550 or email gary at andersonqs.co.uk